In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, our God. Glory to thee, heavenly King, our Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art ever present to fill us to all things. O treasure every good and bestower of life, come and dwell in us, and cleanse every stain, and save our souls, O good one. Please sit down, please. St. John of Cronstadt, who passed away in 1909, he wrote in his spiritual diary, which he called My Life in Christ, he wrote the following about the saints. It is so easy to speak with the saints, it's only necessary to purify the eyes of the heart, to fix them firmly upon a saint known to you, and to pray for what you want, and you will get it. You will get what you ask for. I think today that little section from St. John of Cronstadt is unknown to most Orthodox Christians. Most Orthodox Christians do not have a relationship with the saints. That's why it's important to read the, the writings of the saints to see their faith. Now he says, it's so easy to speak with the saints. Now some of you might say, but I do speak, I pray. But one is to pray in the air and one is to pray to them. How do we pray? How do we connect with them? And he says here, it's only necessary to purify the eyes of the heart. That sounds theological, but in simple terms it means to cleanse ourselves of our passions. And how do we cleanse ourselves of our passions? One is confession, Holy Communion, prayer, holy water, reading the lives of saints, going to church, doing good deeds, all those things purify our souls, but most of all, of course, is that we have to struggle with our passions. If we have hate, we fight it. If we have greed, we fight it. If we have jealousy, we fight it. That's what it means. So he says, purify the eyes of the heart, and then he says, and to fix them firmly upon the saint known to you. So with your purified heart, as much as we can be purified, because we sin all the time, but as much as we can be purified, with that up to what we can be purified heart, we fix our attention upon the saints and pray to them and be assured that what you ask for, you will get, of course, meaning if it's good for your salvation. That's the relationship we should have with the saints. And as I said in the last talk a few months ago, St Clement of Rome, who died in 102, close to 2,000 years ago, he says, Come to the saints, for they who unite themselves to them shall be made holy. Now, this completely puts down the Protestant church which says that we shouldn't venerate saints, we shouldn't believe in the saints, that everyone's a saint and all those other silly things that they say. But in the case of the Orthodox Church, we continue that tradition for 2,000 years, believe that without the saints, you cannot be sanctified. But they say you need Christ to be sanctified. Yes, that's correct, but the saints were sanctified by Christ and now... Christ wants us in humility to also ask his mother for help, his angels for help, 
and his saints for help. And if we don't do that, we cannot become holy. That's the difference between the Protestant church and the Orthodox church. As for the Orthodox church and the Catholic church, that's another problem, which I haven't got time to go into. But their whole idea about saints is all distorted. See, how the church believed in the first thousand years before we split, we continued in the second thousand years. The Orthodox Church has not changed anything of how we believe and venerate saints. The Catholic Church has. And now they are so distorted, I will read further on and you'll see what I mean of what they've done with regard to the saints. So the last talk was talk 78, why do the demons fear when we read the lives of saints? Most of you are here for that and some of you have heard it on the, um, the downloads. And this was very similar to a talk which was really my first official talk, which turned out to be talk three, but that's another thing. But anyway, can we be called Orthodox Christians without reading the lives of the saints? I did that in 2007 in the bookstore in Rockdale. Can we be called Orthodox Christians without reading the lives of the saints? I'm going to read you the blurb for that talk, the first paragraph, and to see that um, I was quite surprised when I read it because I forgot. I forgot that I actually put this together uh, many, many years ago, 12, 13 years ago. And yet, to my surprise, it's exactly what I'm doing in these talks now. So the introduction is, more and more lives of saints have become available in English. Many of the Holy Fathers of the Church have said that it's absolutely necessary for one's salvation to read the lives of saints. This statement seems harsh to some. Why such an emphasis on the reading of the lives of the saints? The answer is that by studying their lives, Orthodox Christians are able to see the teachings of the gospel in practice. This is important, the next part. Trying to read and apply the Gospels without following the example of the saints can lead to heresy and deception. So, the Protestants rejected the saints and as a result, they fell into many deceptions. They cannot understand the Gospel. They believe they do and some, to some extent they've got some understanding, but in general... That's why there's thousands of them, thousands of groups of Protestants. There are Orthodox Christians today who fall into heresy and deception. And as I showed in the last talk, and I will hopefully with God's help show in this talk, the reason why there are so many heresies and deception in the Orthodox Church today is because people do not read the lives of saints. They are like Protestants in a way where they say, I'm going to read the Bible, some say. Or some might say, I'm going to read only the Holy Fathers, the writings of the Holy Fathers, the Philokalia and other deep things. But not many, believe it or not, read the lives of saints. A lot of people write to me over all over the place and when I see that their views are distorted and I ask them, do you read the lives of saints? I mentioned this last time. And the answer is most of the time, no. I can talk about that now just quickly. That's the section last time when I, when I spoke that to me, the people who do not read the lives of saints 
I call them spiritual prunes. Like a prune is a dried fruit. An Orthodox Christian who doesn't read the Life Saints is dry. There's no life in them. So they're called spiritual prunes. And I read from three emails and I called them spiritual prunes. Two of them, after I told them what they're doing is wrong, actually bought the Synaxarian, the 12-volume set of the Lives of Saints. And that was pleasing. So sometimes we might use a negative word, but it does get the point across. All of us, whoever, priest, bishop, monk, nun, lay people, whatever, if we do not read the lives of saints, we are just spiritual prunes, dry fruit. Now, in the last talk, I also read the vision of Elder Sophronios. This was in the life of St. Paisios Velichovsky. I didn't read the conclusion. I just read the conclusion. That was the one where the elder Sophronios saw the demon in his monastery and the demon was saying that he's happy when the monks do too much gardening and take care of visitors and have them live in there and all that type of thing. And then the elder said to him, then why are you still here? And he said, because we're scared of those, and he went, those rags. And the rags were referring to the spiritual books. He says, we're scared that just if one monk in, in his simpleness, in his simple-mindedness, just gets one of those books and starts to apply what's in those books, he says, we're finished. And we're here to make sure that doesn't happen. And when he means those spiritual books, he means the lives of saints, the holy fathers, the philokalias, in that case because they're monks, the conclusion was the vision of Elder Sophronios clearly reveals the great benefit and salvation which comes from the studying of spiritually edifying books. And that is why the demons hate them, in that these books destroy their snares and devices. By reading spiritual books, they destroy the tricks and all the deceptions of the demons that they set out for us. And that's why they hate it. If you remember, I also gave an example of an ex-Jehovah Witness who was baptised Orthodox and he became very proud and he was going around showing everyone his uh, video of his baptism. He was baptised in Greece. He was in the newspaper in Greece. I thought we were supposed to be humble, but people do like to do things on you know, um, newspapers and Facebooks and things like that, but we're called to be humble. I don't know if that kind of mixes together. But anyway, and he came to me and he said that I have to stop doing talks. I was a lay person at that time. And he even rang up an elder that I had in Greece and told him that I should stop doing talks. I forgot to mention in that example, you can listen to it in the last talk, more detail. I forgot to mention that, that I actually did ring up that elder and say, is that true that this person rang up? And he said, yes. He said, where did he sprout up from? like a mushroom sprouts up. Because where did he sprout up from? I go, what should I do? Do you want me to stop doing talks? What do you bless? He says, of course you continue on. He says, he's mentally ill. So that's sad as well. And if you listen to the last talk, you will notice that when you came to my house to insist that I fit, don't do the talks, and I pointed to the books in my library, and I said, well, I just say whatever those books say, and he actually, if you want to know how he reacted, uh, listen to that talk. 
and it was like someone that was possessed. Now, Saint Eustin Povich, I want to speak about him. So, Saint Eustin Povich, who passed away in 1979, has been now proclaimed by the Serbian Church as a saint. He produced the Synaxarian. The Synaxarian means the set of the lives of saints, the 12 volumes. He produced it in modern Serbian, and he used he heavily used the books of Saint Nicodemus the Athenite, who put together lives of saints, and Saint Demetrius of Rostov, the Russian saint. So Saint Nicodemus the Greek and Saint Demetrius of Rostov, he combined the best of both worlds and he produced the Serbian Synaxarian, which I think is still used in Serbia. And if you remember that I said that he taught that an orthodox spiritual life is impossible without the reading of the lives of saints. That's what this great dogmatician said, one of the greatest holy fathers of the 20th century. He said that without the lives of saints, it's impossible to lead a spiritual life, similar to what St. Clement said, where he said that you need the saints to become holy. He also taught St. Justin Povich, I say Justin, but anyway, St. Justin Povich, he taught that the lives of saints are considered the true encyclopedia of orthodoxy. Encyclopedia. When we talk about encyclopedia, we're talking about the deepest knowledge. So we study at university, say some of you have gone, you do a bachelor of um, mathematics, and then later on you do a PhD. Well, what St. Eustin Bobovich is saying is that these lives of saints is the PhD of orthodoxy. And that's why the name of this talk I have uh, thought about, it says, why are the lives of saints considered the true encyclopedia of orthodoxy? And that's what we're going to try and answer today to the best of my ability, but usually I don't answer it, the saints do. Now, I'm going to read you a few things I read in the last talk, and it says the following... Saint Paisios, who passed away in 994, newly canonized saint of Greece, of uh, Mount Athos, read the lives of saints as much as possible because these lives emphasize repentance and you can be helped by them. The Synaxarian, that is the 12 volumes of the lives of saints for every day of the month, is very helpful because one can find in these books whatever vitamin his soul is in need of. The life of the saint of the day is also beneficial. That's his words, but I would say, blessed are they who read the lives of the saints of the day every day. The saints of the day. And we can do that by reading the prologue of St. Nikolai Velimirovich. Everyone should have the prologue of St. Nikolai Velimirovich. It's around three pages. And if you haven't got much time to do much reading at all, in there you've got the lives of saints and he gives a reflection, consideration, and then he takes a part of the Bible and he, and he explains that too. So that is a very, very good book for everyone to have. So the prologue is from um, Sebastian Press, they're in America. There are two volumes set, that's for the whole year. And the lives of the saints of the Orthodox Church Seven volumes set by High Monk Macarius of the Monastery of Simonos Petra Manathos. That can be bought from Alexander Press in Canada. 
and I would urge people, if you can afford it, I think it's around um, 400 American, is it? No, Canadian. 400 Canadian is the same as 400 dollars Australian, and then you've got the, the freight. Now, some bookstores in Australia might sell them, or you can buy it straight from him. I actually spoke to him, and he said that um, you can ring him, and you can pay with a credit card, whatever. That is something that every orthodox home should have. Why? Because in that book, Saint Nikolai might write this much on each saint. Sometimes he might write a page on one saint. But in this book, there could be, for one saint, seven pages. Now, for the whole day, there could be 15 pages on all the different lives of saints. And Father Macarius, he mixed Serbian saints, Romanian saints, Russian saints, Greek saints, and uh, Arabic saints, things like that. So the prologue people should have. I know families that read the prologue to their children after dinner. They read the prologue. That's a family. And the other one is for a bit more reading. Now, if you're a reader, if you can read, if you're not that much of a good reader, then that's okay, I understand that. Now, another thing that I read is from the instructions of St. Anthony of Voronezh, I think you say it, in 1846. In his book, he said, I read this last time, but I didn't explain it properly. He said, the lives of the saints teach us how to fulfill the commandments of the Lord. So he confirms what we already heard from St. Eustine, from uh, many saints. The lives of the saints tell us how to live the commandments that Christ gave us. The, he didn't say the Bible. He said the lives of saints. Why did he say that? Why didn't he say the Bible will teach us, the gospel will t- gospels will teach us how to live the commandments. No, he says the lives of saints would teach us. So is he in heresy? Is that wrong? The Lord said in the gospel, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I'm meek and lowly in heart. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Suddenly he just brings up this verse. And as I said to you last time, I didn't know why he brought that up. I couldn't understand why abruptly he just brought up this particular passage from the Bible. And then he asks, what do meekness and loneliness mean? How are we adorned by these virtues? The saints asking. And he answers, read the lives of the saints because the saints, those earthly angels and heavenly men, will teach you. Not just read the Bible by itself. And nor did he say to get the interpretation of the Gospels, for example, that exist by the Blessed Theophilat, they're the interpretations. But for some reason, he didn't mention that. He mentioned the lives of saints. So does that mean that he's against the interpretation of the gospel by Saint Theophilac and other interpretations? No, there's a special reason why. And I'm going to rephrase that because the way it was written, I couldn't understand why he brought that, that passage up. So I'll read it again. If you choose any part of the gospel, for example, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lonely in heart. How would we know what this means? What does Christ mean by meekness and loneliness, and how do we acquire these virtues? The answer to this is by reading the lives of saints. The lives of saints will teach you. What he did is he just picked 
randomly one part of the Bible. Whatever part of the Bible you take out, whatever gospel, whatever teaching of Christ you take out, from Matthew, from John, from Mark, from Luke, doesn't matter. He says, how will you know what it means? By reading the lives of saints. Because they put all the teachings of Christ in practice. And for us, we need examples. It's like when I used to teach at school, I used to teach a concept, some mathematical concept. You don't just teach the concept in theory. You're supposed to give examples so that the person can understand it better. And the same as spiritual life. When it says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Oh yeah, I think I understand that. But do we? But when we read the life of St. Philaret, the almsgiver, or St. John, the almsgiver, and we see in there, then we say, no, there's much more to what I thought, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. There's more to it. Once you've read the lives of saints, then of course you can read the interpretations of blessed Theophila and other interpretations. But first, every Orthodox Christian must read the lives of saints. St. John of Shanghai in San Francisco, I read some of his life last time, and I will tell you quickly the first part, and then I'll go on to the new part today. When St. John was young, he loved above all to read the lives of saints. Note, he didn't say he loved above all to read the Gospels. He loved above all, above all, to read the lives of saints. See the importance of the, of the reading of the lives of saints. And we know it's important because no one hardly reads them. They don't even have in their seminaries a subject called the lives of saints. Actually, St. Eustin Povich, from what I understand, maybe Father would know, from what I understand, he wanted to introduce a new subject into the seminary in Serbia and that subject was the lives of saints. Did you, have you ever read that? I think you were right. Yeah, he wanted to introduce that. St. John was there. Probably from his influence too. All these St. John of Shanghai, San Francisco, emphasis on lives of saints. St. Eustin Povich, emphasis on lives of saints. St. Nikolai Verimovich, emphasis on lives of saints. How do we know that St. Nikolai emphasised that? Because he wrote the prologue. And what's in the prologue? The lives of saints. St. Eustin Povich went as far as to uh, put together the Synaxarian, 12 volumes. It took him years to do it. And he went through obstructions because those times the communist and the church authorities were a bit negative. They thought he was backward. If you try to keep the traditions of the church, you're backward. And they looked at him as backward, fanatic. And for many years, they would not produce his lives are saints. And it was like he wasted his time. But lo and behold, just before his death, they produced it. And now it's available to all the Serbians. It's forbidden. It was forbidden. Oh, that's even worse. Mm, that's lucky you came. That adds to the <laughs> that adds to the flavour. That's even worse. That one I didn't know. But uh, but they, yeah, he went through a lot. As the oldest child. St. John would teach his four brothers and one sister by reading to them the lives of the saints. That's what St. John did. From 11 to 18, he attended military school and from 18 to 22, he studied law at university. 
So he was obviously very intelligent to study law. Throughout his studies, he continued the blessed practice of reading the lives of the saints throughout all his studies. In other words, from young, as soon as he could read, up to the age of 22, when he finished university, he read the lives of saints. I also read to you last time that the other students commented and they said that they noticed that St John spent more time reading the lives of saints than attending his lectures. Even so, he did very well in, the universe, in his university studies. St John believed that the proper knowledge of the lives of saints is more important than any university course. In other words, say we lived in a, a bad society that said, OK, you can only study the following. You can either read the lives of saints, but you end up with no qualification, because this qualification is very important today, or you can study law, or you can be a doctor and be called doctor. You do a PhD, you can be called doctor. If you studied, like, the ins and outs of a snake shedding his skin, there might be a PhD on that. And you, get a, and you get a doctorate for that? Or you can study the lives of saints. Which one would you pick? And to be honest, most people would pick, obviously, the degree. Money, prestige, but do you get salvation? Now, does that mean that if you study law or how a snake sheds his skin and get a PhD, does that mean that you're not going to be saved? No. No, it doesn't mean that. But if you had the choice, you must choose the lives of saints first. One could say that St. John studied the lives of, of the Orthodox saints precisely on the university level, which is what I was trying to say before. The lives of saints is the university of orthodoxy. St. Justin taught, just a reminder, that he said, the lives of saints are considered the true encyclopedia of orthodoxy. It's similar. One says university, one says encyclopedia. Question. After St. John finished his studies at the age of 22, did he continue to study the lives of saints? In other words, he, he read them, he learnt them. One would say he would stop because he, he, he knows it all after reading it for so many years, up to 22, say you learned to read at six or seven, he read them for 15 years. He read them and reread them and reread them. So one would say he knows it and then he doesn't need it anymore. An answer. One should not think that St John finished his deep and intense study of the lives of saints after completing his studies at military school and university. Quite the contrary. He continued to learn about the saints by reading their lives right up to the time of his repose. In other words, I'm adding this, the lives of saints to St. John were like oxygen. Can we live without oxygen? No. St. John could not live without the lives of saints because it was oxygen to him. Spiritual oxygen. Above oxygen. If you had your choice to have oxygen, and if you don't get it, you'll die physically, or you get spiritual oxygen, the lives of saints, but you live spiritually forever, you choose the second. Don't worry about the other oxygen. And hence why the saints would rather die than lose their faith and things that they believed. The next section, still on St John quickly. St John believed that in whatever land an Orthodox Christian found himself, it was his responsibility to venerate and pray to the national and local saints. 
Now, I have to explain the difference between national and local saints. A local saint is for an area in a country. In Serbia, in Greece or Russia, there could be a saint that's venerated specifically for that area, but not really venerated throughout. It's on the liturgical calendar, but it's not a feast day of the whole of Russia, for example, or Serbia or Greece. For example, Saint Nectarius is now a national saint. Everyone in Greece, they have it as a feast day. Saint Sava of Serbia is a national saint. But there are also saints that are venerated throughout the whole world of orthodoxy. Saint John Chrysostom, that's what we call them, ecumenical teachers and saints. Saint George is venerated by the whole orthodox church. There's a feast day. Everyone serves liturgy on that day throughout the whole world. So Saint John, when he would visit a country, he would always find what saints are there, whether local, national, especially the forgotten ones. Wherever Saint John went, Russia, Serbia, China, France, Belgium, Italy, the Netherlands, Tunisia, which is North Africa there, America, he researched the lives of the little known local Orthodox saints. He went to the churches housed in their relics, performed services in their honour, and asked the Orthodox priests there to do likewise. By the end of his life, he had vast knowledge of Western and Eastern Orthodox saints. The Orthodox Church has forgotten a lot of the Western saints that were before the schism of 1054. There are many over there. Some of them we do venerate, but there's many that we don't, who are Orthodox saints, even though they're owned by the Catholics. And St. John had, I will use the word obsession in a good way, a good obsession with finding who these saints were. He wanted to venerate them, and he also struggled to bring them into the calendar, the church calendar, to reintroduce these saints. Now, here's a story to have as an example of how he loved the saints and how he wanted to learn about them and venerate them. One of St. John's spiritual children was Archimedrat Spiridon. Like St. John, Father Spiridon was born in Russia but went to Serbia following the Russian Revolution. The history of that, for many of you who don't know, when communism came to Russia, many of the uh, hierarchs and a lot of people, monastics, priests and all that, they were able to escape in time from Russia and they went to different parts, but in particular they went to Serbia. And the Serbian patriarch then gave them a blessing to set up their synod and was like a church in a church. They were separate. The Russians took care of themselves. They had their churches. They had everything. But they were with the blessing of the Patriarch of Serbia, the Patriarch of Serbia. They were called the Russian Church Abroad. And they used to be called White Russians. Red Russians were the Orthodox who were still under, behind the Iron Curtain where there was some control from the communists. They were called Red Russians and the White Russians were those who escaped and they found a home, very welcomed home, in Serbia. While they were there, they actually um, influenced the Serbians uh, tremendously. They brought a lot of the Russian piety from Russia, 
down to Serbia. When Serbia, however, fell to the communists after the Second World War, if I'm correct, Father Spiridon and many of his fellow Russians settled on the border of Italy and Serbia in a refugee camp in the Italian city of Trieste, in which he was the priest. Father Spiridon was the priest. At that time, St. John had been assigned as the Bishop of Western Europe, and therefore that area in Italy was under his jurisdiction. He was the Bishop of that area. And he would go and visit that camp. Father Spiridon was in charge. He was the priest, the main priest of that refugee camp of Russians. When St. John came to the place where Father Spiridon served, he was already informed about the early Western saints of Trieste, such as St. Justus the Martyr, 3rd century, after whom the city had originally been called Justinopolis, St. Sergio the Martyr, 2nd century, and St. Frugifer, if I'm saying it right, the first bishop of Trieste, 6th century. So, as I said before, he had this thing, he had to go and study which saints are there, and he wanted to go and venerate them if their relics were there, and he wanted to know about their life, and he would search all that. He did that. Finding that nothing had been done to venerate the local saints, Archbishop John, St. John, was disappointed with Father Spiridon because Father Spiridon didn't do that. Father Spiridon later said how he regretted not having thought of it himself. No one had done such a thing before. The saints of Trieste had largely been forgotten and it was St. John who restored their local veneration. The Western Church, even though they say they believe in saints like us, but they don't value them, they don't venerate them, except the newer ones, the ones after the schism. Interesting, the ones before the schism who we recognise, who we say are true saints, they're slowly forgetting about them. But the new ones, like John Paul II and all these new saints that they've got, them they venerate. Someone's behind that. Do you know who that someone is? Does anyone know? What's your name again? George. Do you know who it is? Starts with D or S. He's got two names. Do you know who it is? I think I do. Who? Does he reside in the Vatican? N I think he lives there at times. <laughs> but but where, where do you, who do you think it is? Uh, you're thinking of the Pope? No, 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 no. This one is higher than the Pope. Oh, really? He probably lives in a place we don't want to go. That's it. He lives in a place that we all don't want to go. He has a lot of control. This is what happens when we lose the traditions of the church. When we lose our traditions, we're toast, as they say in America. That's it, finished. Before doing any church services in Trieste, Father John took Father Spiridon to the relics of the saints vested in an apetrachili, which is what I'm wearing, and a small omophorium, which is what the bishops wear. It's high there. With a censer and a cross in his hand, he would descend into the crypts, that's where the tombs were, 
under the cathedrals where, according to long lists of information, the saints had been buried, according to his list that he had, that, he, that St. John had. He would sing their troparia and contacia written on pieces of paper, which he would pull out of his pockets, praying to the saints to intercede, in other words, to pray for the city. And only then would he go to celebrate the services in Father Spiridon's camp church, like we say St. Demetrius, the protector of Thessalonica. We have saints that are protectors of the city. I think St. Philothé, woman of Athens, and things like that. But they've lost a lot of that. As Father Spiridon recalled, St. John acted as if the ancient local saints were present wherever he walked. He had such faith in the saints that he was like he, they were there next to him and he would pray to them and honour them. Before leaving Trieste, he contacted local Roman Catholic clergy, acquiring from them various permits so that the Orthodox Church in Trieste would have free access to the relics and sites of the saints. Now, some of you are strict on ecumenism. I'd say, oh, he mixed with the Catholics. St. John must be an ecumenist. But did he pray with them? No. So you can deal with them. You can talk to them. You can work together. But you can't pray together. That's the difference. Did St. John pray with them? No. When he went into their churches, did he participate in their services? No. He went straight to where the relics of the saints were, venerated the saints and left. Don't get mixed up. Now, what happens with those who do pray with those of other faiths, including Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, etc., in this what's called the ecumenical movement. What do we do about them? What should be our attitude towards them? Well, my, my hope is one day to collect some in good information and to present that talk. I think that talk is one of the talks that I would like to do before my departure. That would be an important talk. Three important talks that I wanted to do. One was on prayer, 76 and 77 very important talks. Without that you can't even understand all the other 75 talks. Just worthless. Where we need God to enlighten us to understand things. The second thing that I found important is the lives of saints. And the third thing is using the prayer of, and the lives of saints to understand how to deal with this, this ecumenism. which is like a disease that spread throughout the church. Because people say, oh, if the patriarch or if some bishop or someone prays with the heretics, it means straight away you have to leave the church. And that's why we have a lot of groups that have left the church because they say, well, if we don't leave the church, then we will be contaminated. We will become heretics. But... When you read the lives of saints, you will notice so many saints who were even ordained by bishops who had heretical beliefs. And when 
they were condemned, those bishops, later on, some even after they died, those saints were never reordained and they were part of the same church. What's important is not to everyone run away here and there and make different groups. What's important is that we confess the truth. So, for example, say I'm in Australia and my bishop begins to preach heresy, for example, or he starts praying with heretics. Thanks God doesn't do that, but let's just say he did. What do I do? Well, most people say, oh, you've got to run away. Because if you're under him and you commemorate his name, it means that you lose grace. That's not how it works. A lot of the saints didn't do that. Some did cut off for some reason because they changed the dogma. But they haven't changed the dogma. Oh, but they pray with heretics, but they haven't changed the dogma. But they say wrong things, they preach things, they say that the Catholics are the same, but they haven't changed the dogma. What do you mean by that? Well, the creed's the same. There's been not one official change of an orthodox dogma. Not one change. And yet, people say, no, we have to run away. We have to form a new church. And I ask these people, I've met a lot of them, can you answer me one question? The Roman Catholics, when they were with us, up to 1054, I said, is it true that they changed the creed on and off? They actually say, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the Lord, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's a heresy. And the Father says, anathema, whoever changes the creed. Anathema. Cursed. Cut off from God. Yet they changed that. Back in the 800s, even really earlier, but they got really serious and started, and then they even changed it officially. Some of the popes changed it officially, then another pope would come and then he would change it back to the orthodox one, then another pope would come to change it back to the heretical one. And the Greeks of the Byzantine Empire, they knew that they had done that. Fortius the Great, all these great saints of the orthodox church knew that they had changed the creed. Therefore, all these great fathers should have said we have to cut off from them because if we commemorate the Pope, which they were, that means that we are partaking in the heresy and that means we are heretics. But yet, they didn't do it. Now, Fortius the Great put together a synod and in that synod, it was called the First Second Council, something like that. And the 15th canon in there, which a lot of these groups use, it says, if any bishop preaches heresy, you may cut off from them. They forget the may. You may cut off from them. St. Fortius was the president of that synod. St. Fortius the Great, one of the greatest holy fathers of the Orthodox Church, universal, universal saint. Recognised by all the, rec all the Orthodox churches. So one would say, St. Fortius, you wrote that canon, then why don't you do that now? You have to cut off from them because they've changed the creed. And what did St. Fortius do? Nothing. He didn't cut off from them. But, 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 but he, but you did the canon, together with the other fathers. Why didn't he cut them off? Because fanatical people think that you can cut off a church, willy-nilly as they say, millions of people 
because some idiot changed the creed when most of the people don't even know the significance of the change of that creed. Once you cut off a whole church, it's very hard to bring them back. And what the Orthodox Fathers believed, of course they did apply those canons to some bishops and cut them off, but to a whole church that can only be done by an ecumenical council. That means every Orthodox church in the world, Antioch, uh, Russia, Serbia, um, Jerusalem, Alexandria, Constantinople, all of them have to get together and say, we cut off the whole Roman church. That didn't happen. And the Greeks said, we will wait for their repentance. We will wait for them to repent. We will teach, as Fortius did when he wrote a book called On the Holy Spirit, which talks about that dogma. By the way, he didn't mention them by name. He didn't even mention them by name in his book. He says, we will wait and pray for their repentance, but not just really need to say, cut them off. Later on, it got so bad, as I said, back off and on. Some popes brought the creed back again to normal, some not, etc. When it got to 1054, they were having fights, the Greeks, the Byzantine Empire with the Roman Church. And the fight wasn't even about the creed that much. The fight was about that the Pope of Rome wanted to be King Kong. He wanted to be the head of all the churches in the world. He wanted to stand on the building like the real King Kong did, beat his breast and say, I am the supreme head of the whole church. And the Orthodox said, no way. That's not going to happen. And he wanted to be the head. And the Greeks said no, and there was fights and offences and this and letters and rudeness and things like that. So I think two cardinals came into St. Sophia and they brought in a document called the... Uh, Bull of excommunication, I think that's what it was, and they came and they put it on the altar. The Greeks, at that time, knowing that they had changed the creed, knowing that they had done a lot of other things, oh, they had done a lot of things with the, um, the, bre the bread that they used in the consecration, it was without yeast and all these things, they had done so many innovations, so many things that were wrong. And yet the Greeks were crying and saying, please don't do it. Don't separate the churches. And then the, um, the cardinals and that went up and they put it on the altar and they said, you are excommunicated. You are no longer part of the church. And as they were leaving, the Greeks were chasing the supposed heretics, which they were, and was saying, don't do it, come back, take it back, don't do it, don't leave. And that's when the schism happened, that's when it started, 1054. And the Greeks were begging them, begging these people who they knew had changed the creed. Who in the church today, which patriarch, which church has changed one dogma what they're doing by praying together and making stupid statements which are stupid and demonic 
They've never, not one has changed even one dogma. And yet we're told, now you've got to leave. That's not how the church works. Church doesn't work like that. And how do I know all these things? How do I know? Lives of the saints. Lives of saints. <laughs> lives of saints. You're a lives of saints priest, aren't you? I can tell. <laughs> Only with your friends. Uh, I, there you are. I, I, I can tell. He's responding. The ones that don't respond, they usually become very stiff. That's how important the lives of saints are. If you read these things, you'll see contradiction after. So when I speak to these some old calendars groups that are that believe that they're the only church in the world that are the Orthodox, other groups like that, so I speak to them. I actually went to one place in Athens. They are the most fanatical old calendars group in the world. And they say that they are the only Orthodox church left in the whole world which teaches the truth. And I went there, I was a lay person, and I said to him, the one about this, this, this thing for the creed and all that, I said, Father, can you explain that to me? So he got up and he went to his cupboard, got me a magazine, brought it to me. No answer. I said other things too. He went back up to the cupboard, got some magazines, gave it to me. So altogether, the answer was silence. Silence. And these people are fanatical. They will rip you apart. They're so fanatical. They'll call you names. He didn't know what to say. Now, what does that mean? I'm smart. Is it? No. I just told him, that's what I've read in the Bible. I said, explain it to me. Just can you please? So I wasn't rude to him. I said, can you please explain it to me? I don't understand. If you say that when someone preaches heresy, you've got to leave, then can you explain to me then why the Orthodox Church, which had so many saints at the time, from Fortius the Great and many others, why didn't they leave? Nothing. So that's why you need the lives of saints. Without it, we fall into heresy. We fall into deception and we fall into schism. And there's so many other examples, which I haven't got time, but you just read about synods, synods that were together, like synods, and they say, and the orthodox and the heretics were fighting with each other of who they're going to elect as patriarch. So you say to yourself, wait a minute, the synod, one synod with orthodox and heretics mixed, what does that mean? How can they be together? But that's how it was, like it is today. Say, for example, in Greece. In Greece, there might be about 80 bishops. Out of those 80 bishops, there could be 15, 16, 20, I don't know, who are ecumenists. They're together. And the Orthodox bishops speak up. So as I said, if my bishop, as my example I gave before, if, say, my bishop started teaching these things, what do I do? Well, I would have to teach the truth. Not like a fanatic, just teach the truth. Now, what happens if he defrocks me? Well, then I'm like one of the saints. That's what they did to the saints. They defrocked them, they exiled them, they tortured them, they killed them. That's it. Did they leave? Not many. The majority stayed. That's the secret. As long as you're not teaching heresy. And the main thing is, there has not been one dogmatic change. 
Not one dogmatic change, but the main thing is that we are free to teach the orthodox faith. And regardless if the patriarch or other people are teaching these things, they haven't changed the dogma, and even if they did, well, they did in Rome as well, but that didn't stop many orthodox holy fathers to still be in communion with them. See, lies are saints. That's it. That's, that's how we know what to do. Now, St. John gave instructions before he left to Father Spiridon what to do. He said, number one, he told him how he should commemorate the saints in the services. You must commemorate the local saints in the services. You know, like I did today when I was going through all the saints, you add them into the, into the commemoration. How he should take his parishioners to the shrines of all local saints on their feast days and venerate them and how to chant services to them. And St. John said that no services should be conducted without first addressing these local saints and no liturgies performed without first commemorating them at the proscomedia. Now, the proscomedia, some of you don't know, it's the preparation of the bread and wine that we later on consecrated to body and blood. It's done on the side table of the altar and during that time, the priest also commemorates saints. He takes out nine particles. The first one is to the angels, the second one, St. John the Baptist and the prophets, the third one, the apostles, the fourth one, hierarchs, the fifth one, the uh, martyrs, the sixth one, uh, the ascetics, uh, seventh one, the unmercery healers, eighth, Saints Joachim and Anna, and the saints of the day, and the ninth one is St. John Chrysostom, or whatever liturgy you're serving on that day, St. Basil or St. James. So, the priest should commemorate in the proscomedia the saints of the area that you're in. I'm quickly going to read to you now 12 examples of what I said to you earlier. The saints read the lives of saints and the gospels too. It does mention that. So let's see what it says. St. Porphyrios. I read this, the first four from the last talk and then I've got some new ones. As a novice, my spiritual fathers, this is St. Porphyrios speaking, my spiritual fathers had forbidden me to read books which contain deep spiritual teachings. So in obedience, that word obedience, unheard of today. You don't see obedience much at all. He said, so in obedience, I read only the lives of saints, the Salta, and the church service books. Notice, no philokalias, no deep books, no Sactasirian, other deep books. His spiritual fathers told him, you only read lives of saints, the Salta, with the Psalms, and the church service books. That's it. And what happened from that? That's wrong. People can say he should be reading the Philokalia. Some of you even here have got Philokalias at home. And next to this Philokalia, maybe some Zyprexa, because you go crazy. You lose reality. Or other, because they've got different names antidepressants and things like that. I'm not making fun of the mentally ill. I'm putting down those who are reading books that are above their level. I don't even read the Philokalia. When I first came to the church and I went to a church bookstore and down at St George Rose Bay 
And there was from some Philokalias, and I bought them. I took them home and I read them. And there was, I just started at that stage, I was about 25, because I wasn't in the church when I was younger. And I started reading them, and in my deception, I actually thought I could understand them. That's what deception is. I actually thought I could understand them, but I stopped pretty quickly because I found other books that I understood better than them, even though the first ones I didn't really understand at all. How, how did St. Porphyrius become such a great saint? Obedience. One of the greatest saints. Such a miracle worker. And yet, he started off with reading the lives of saints of Sartre and the church, church service books. That's it. And God gave him abundance of grace, and very early. And it was all because of his obedience. Not because he read Philokalias and did thousands of prostrations, things like that. The proper spiritual fathers are careful not to lead their spiritual children into deception. Everything is mild, mild, especially for newcomers. You do everything sober. Even when people come to me, they just entered the church, they say, I'm, I'm now in the church and there's a Lent coming up, say the Great Lent. And they go, oh, a father says, well, I do the the uh, no oils and I'll do this and I won't eat this. I said, no, 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 no. No. Because one, we don't know your physical health. We don't know if once you start fasting, you might get sick. Number two, we don't know your mental health. When people fast, sometimes it affects them mentally. And number three, can you also get sick mentally, seriously sick, deceived, so even if it's Great Lent, it doesn't bother me. I'll say to them, you can fast a few days, like Wednesday, maybe when, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then the rest of the days you can still eat, even meat, etc. And you build them up. You build them up. Not like bang. Not like bang. It's like this man that I used to visit when I was young. Uh, when I first came to church, I asked the priest, you know, do you know anyone that I can go and visit because it says you should visit the sick? So I visited this man that was in a wheelchair, Greek, and uh, he could move his hands, that's about it. He was totally paralysed. And uh, he was around 17, 18. He could speak. That's what happened. And he said that he dived into a river and there was a log underneath the surface. And he didn't see it. He thought it was deep there as well, like the other areas. But there was a log there, hit his head and became paralysed. That's what happens when newcomers come into the Orthodox Church and start doing big fasts reading inappropriate books. It's like they hit their head when they dive in. It's like they're diving in to all these orthodox practices that are beyond them, and they hit their head, and they become paralysed spiritually, sick, mentally, everything. Very dangerous. People ring up all the time or write letters, and they say oh, they went to the mental hospital and whatever, and then they said, they got sick, they got this, they got that. I said, okay, let me know. When did it happen? And lo and behold, right on the dot, uh, mid-Lent, mid-Lent, okay, and were you fasting? Yeah, how were you fasting? Uh, no oils, or some of them just had air, <laughs> things like that. And then, luck, there they go, in the mental of one fellow, in America, he lost it so much that he went into a school I've mentioned before and he started screaming that there was a bomb in there. 
the FBI was involved because it was buck shocking until they found out that he was mentally ill. And when did this happen? Lent. God's not going to ask us for these. Not even a lot of monks can fast these days. You should see the monasteries. Just uh, like there's all these um, dispensations. Some of them can't fast it properly. And some of them have to have milk. And some of them, their stomachs are like, like they're ripped apart. And all these different problems. And yet you've got these people working. These monks and nuns have services every day. And they fill them with grace. That's how they can fast like that. Supposed to fast and pray. How can you pray a little bit, not even go to church, go to work, transport, etc., work in some manual labour, some mental, uh, and, you're, and you're fasting and prayers are hardly nothing at home, or if a little bit, or maybe they're deceived, hardly no church services. And yet, some people I know are fasting more than many monastics that I know. So either they're great or they're stupid. And I would say they're stupid. That's very dangerous. So St. Porphyrius didn't do that. Oh, by the way, St. Porphyrius got sick and they had to send him away. They said to him, you know, that you, you can't keep the fast, you've got to have milk, cheese and eggs, which he was having. It wasn't enough. Lent, even during Lent. And they sent him away. They said, you go back to your family and tell them to give you meat, chicken, etc. So here comes this, uh, this uh, schema monk, went back to his mummy, back to the village. The mum was very upset because he ran away when he was young. She wouldn't even talk to him. And um, he was having his eggs, cheese, milks. And then he got better and he went back to Mount Alphos. And then lo and behold, within weeks, he got sick again. And they said to him, look, sorry, sorry, son, you know, we're not going to be responsible, we can't do it. You can't live here, you cannot live this life. Because some people say, oh, it doesn't matter. You have faith in God and you can, don't worry about the fast and God will help you. Then how come God didn't help St. Porphyrios? St. Nectarius ate meat too, by the way, but not during, he didn't break the fast, but he, he, he ate meat. So people have very, very strange ideas. I'll tell you what God will ask us. For the married people. Do you say sorry when you're wrong to your spouse? That's a sadical. That's actually greater than the fasting, by the way. What's the cause of divorces today? Uh, I think it's because people have oil on Wednesday and Friday. <laughs> I don't think so. What's the cause? Uh, because they can't say sorry to each other. That's the cause of divorce. They can't say the ego, the ego. Work on the ego. But when we fast without the oil, then we become stronger to say sorry. That's what they think. The thing is they don't know that they're so weak, they can't say sorry because they're so tired. Weak. So this is all dangerous. Saint Elder Cleopas said, I read the lives of saints of which I had the 12 volumes. I would read and, uh, and the day would pass by in what seemed like an hour. The lives of saints really strengthens one, very much so. All that I read then, I will never forget. Now, he did read other books. He, read, he, he did read Philokalius and that because he was a um, monastic, very, very progressed holy man. But he emphasised, he says, 
the lives of saints really strengthens one. Saint Sava of Kalimnos was a spiritual child of Saint Nectarius. Saint Sava was born in 1862 into a poor family. From his childhood, he would read the lives of saints. From this reading, his heart became inflamed with the desire for the monastic life. Now, parents might say, oh, if my child reads the lives of saints, they might become a monastic. You wish. You wish they did. But no, it doesn't happen like that. But a lot of times, it can happen where uh, people can become inflamed so much that they want to get deeper into the spiritual life. So they choose priesthood, they choose monasticism, things like that. You wish... Not, that's not a negative. Remember what I said to you about the dead? They're in Hades and they're waiting for prayers. The souls are waiting for prayers to be released so they can go, not purgatory, they don't, it's not the same. Purgatory is a heresy. When we die, most people don't, don't get saved straight away. They go to Hades, which is not hell. Hell is after the judgment. Hades is a place where the souls await for commemorations from the living, from their relatives, from friends, from the church, where we're praying for them in the memorials, in the liturgies, etc., to for them to receive forgiveness. But the Protestants say, oh, there's no repentance in Hades. Christ said it. There's no repentance in Hades. And that's correct. They're not repenting. They're being forgiven. That's a difference. They, the dead cannot repent in the next life. Of their, it's finished. But they can be granted forgiveness. And they say, the fathers of the church say, that, this, that these souls say, how I wish for one of my descendants to become a monastic or a priest so they can commemorate me and get me out of here. Now, does that mean you've got to become a monastic priest to, get, to help your lives? No, it just means this commemorate them, 40-day liturgies, as much as you can, and commemorate whenever you go to the liturgy, give um, the priest the piece of paper, living and dead, especially for the dead that are in need of help. Number four, Mother Elizabeth, 24th of April. From her earliest years, St Elizabeth learned the lives of the saints by heart so that she was able to follow the example of their evangelical conduct in every circumstance in her life. Beautiful. She read the lives of saints, she remembered those lives, and in her life, she would always think of the lives of saints to remember what to do and how to act. How did that saint react to that? What did that saint do? Notice she doesn't say he, she read the gospel. Of course she read the gospels as well. But... She read the lives of saints to understand the gospel teachings. And that's what we need. See, when someone tells me, um, we need to cut off from the church because the, the bishops prayed with a Muslim or something like that. And I go, okay. Dunk, dick, 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 the mind starts thinking. Oh, yeah, but that life and that life and that life, and that life, and that life. And I say, no, it doesn't work like that. I go, yes, the canons, the canons, the canons. I said, yes, but the lives of saints, we have examples where that didn't happen. Does that mean that the saints were against the canons? No. Then there must be something more to the canons. Maybe there's something to the canons that we can't just read them like a novel. 
and think that we can understand them. St. Fortius said, if a bishop preaches heresy, you may cut off. But he himself didn't cut off from the Romans. That contradicts. I was talking to a fanatical um, old calendar's priest one day. I'm not against the old calendar. I'm not against those who choose not to be part of the official church if, they don't, if, if that's... But as long as they don't proclaim that everyone else is in, he's got no grace. This is ridiculous. Anyway, this person was saying there's no grace. And he was saying to me, but, you know, the, the canons, the canons. I said, yeah, I understand the canons. I agree with you. The canon says that. But how come in the life of such and such it does said this and such and such that happened and such and such that? And I was quoting all these saints. He had no idea. And he goes, no, no, the canon, the canon, the canon. I said, yes, but say so-and-so and that saint and that saint. And he goes, are you ready for it? This is, this is the level it gets to. Because I don't think he, I don't think that man read Lies of Saints because he didn't know what I was talking about. It's like I was talking to him in some ancient language, Aramaic or something, and he didn't understand a word that I was saying. That's how it is. When you speak to people that read the Lives of Saints, you can speak to them Mandarin, makes no difference. So... He said to me at the end, you ready for it? Doesn't matter about the saints. Doesn't matter about tradition. It's the rudder that we should follow. See, the new heretics of the Orthodox Church. We had the first ones where the Protestants that they would say, don't worry about tradition, don't worry about anything, only the Bible. Now we've got the new ones. Only the Pidalion in Greek, or we say in English, the rudder. And he said, don't worry about the saints. I said to him, wow. <laughs> That's interesting. Remained calm. And I said, do you know what you just said? And he goes, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter. And he started getting agitated because what he was saying wasn't from God. Why is he getting agitated for? See, the lives of saints. Without them, you are a prune, spiritual prune and toast. We need the lives of saints to know how to understand the gospel. Now, St. Claudius, Bishop of Besancon, 6th of June. Who is that? I don't even know what Besancon is. This is why it's important. It was in those lives that you can get up from the, um, the Simulo Petra one from Alexander Press. There's all these unknown saints. I don't know who they are. Now, in my older days, I wouldn't read it because I said, I don't know them. And then I started to read them. I go, what a second. It doesn't matter that I don't know who they are, doesn't matter, it's not popular, I'm still going to get what I can out of them. Sometimes I don't even know what area they are, what period, I don't even know a lot of times who they are. So St. Claudius was born in 607. He nourished his soul during his youth by reading the lives of saints. And that's what I got from there for you to hear. New martyr John of Thessalonica, it's 29th of May. St. John was born into a poor family in Thessalonica, Although illiterate, John showed remarkable piety and a great desire to hear his brother read him the Holy Scriptures or the lives of saints. Their great accomplishments were engraved deeply on his young memory, the great accomplishments of the saints. So in this one, we read that he was read the Holy Scriptures and the lives of saints. I'm sure the others read the, the Holy Scriptures too. But this one specifically did mention that. But I'm telling you that when you get those books and you read them, the majority is an emphasis on the lives of saints. Saint Ignatius Brenchin of the 30th of April, famous Russian saint, 
Our Holy Father Ignatius was born in 1807. He loved going to church and reading the gospel and found his delights in the lives of saints. You missed something, some of you. One word. Which word was said that wasn't said for the other two? Delights. That's correct. He found his delights in the lives of the saints. He loved reading the lives of the saints and he became a great holy father of the Russian church. His book is The Arena. One of my favourite books. Very, very good book. Venerable Father Seraphim of Dombos, 6th of May. I think that might be Russia. I don't know. Is it important? Not for us. Born in 1527, he displayed from childhood an admirable desire for the ascetic life. Under the direction of the village priest, he gave himself zealously and attentively to the study of Holy Scripture and the lives of saints. By imitating them, he decided to embrace the monastic life. There's another one where it's both. But as you notice, it says, by imitating the lives of saints. From then he became so inflamed with spiritual life that he wanted to become a monastic. Saint Akakios of Kapsukalivia, which is in Mount Athos, 12th of April. He was born into a poor family. While still very young, he was given the responsibility of taking care of his family and therefore he was unable to go to school. He had a thirst for the knowledge of divine things so he would attentively follow the church services and the reading of the lives of saints. He couldn't read, but at least he could go to church and listen to church services, which another saint earlier said, and the lives of saints. Saint Macarius the Merstrim in Abbot of Coliazino, 17th of March. In his childhood, Saint Macarius read the lives of the saints enthusiastically. He became so filled with their brilliant deeds that he wanted to imitate them so that he could find salvation. So that he could find salvation. Number 11, Venerable David of Thessalonica, 26th of June. David was born in Thessalonica in the 5th century. He led a strict ascetic life and he studied the Holy Scriptures and the lives of the saints. Inspired by the example of the holy stylites, he lived in an almond tree in constant prayer, keeping strict fast and enduring heat and cold. There's one with both, Holy Scripture and the lives of saints. But without the lives of saints, you will not understand the Holy Scriptures. So what I say to people is, you read both or you're in trouble. The last one, St. Daniel of Archkinsk, 10th of June. See, some of them can't even say their names. It doesn't matter. We still learn from them. St. Daniel was born in 1784 in a village in Russia. His, his father had psychological problems and he had to work to take care of his family, so he had no schooling whatsoever. In 1807, that's um, 23 years old, he entered the army where he learned to read. During his military service, he passionately immersed himself in the Holy Scriptures and the lives of the saints. And that is 12 examples. Where, but as I've said, most of them, 
it's the lives of saints. So the, the answer, if you have a question of, so what do we do? You read the Gospels, yes, but especially the lives of saints, so that you can understand the Gospels. If not, you will become deceived, all of us. We need those lives of saints. The saints of God, such as the martyrs, hierarchs, priests, apostles, equal to the apostles, monastics, elders, eldresses, confessors of the faith, ascetics, royal saints, fools for Christ, and unmercy healers, truly did accomplish those great achievements which we read about in their lives. When reading the lives of saints, Orthodox Christians can undergo a number of temptations when reading the lives of saints. So I want to say this. Number one, unbelief and doubt regarding the truthfulness of the accounts of the lives of saints. Unbelief and doubt. Sometimes we have unbelief. Oh, did that really happen? Sometimes we have doubt. Oh, I'm not sure. Is that good? Do we have to become devastated if that happens to us? Of course not. If you read again the lives of saints, you'll see they went through those things. Some of them went through them really bad. They went through unbelief, doubt, for years. For years God tested them and because he wanted them to know that faith comes from him and not from us. So God permits these. Some might say, oh, that's a punishment. Don't use that word. That, that, the punishment, the true punishment will come after the last judgment. Whatever God does now, it's for our good. So as we're reading, we can have a blasphemous thought. That's not true. Or did that really happen? Not sure. There's some doubt. Or we can even have disgusting thoughts during the reading, you know, blasphemous, like really disgusting thoughts. And people that I know that when they go through that, they become very put off, especially if they're suffering a little bit from some mental issues. They can become, or as Saint Paisio says, if they're very sensitive souls, they become knocked around by these things. You shouldn't do that. What we need to do is just read on. And within seconds, we're gone. Don't sit and go, oh, that's bad. Um, and then you try and convince yourself. And say, I've got I to gotta believe this. No, of course the saint r rose from the dead. Or something like that. Don't do that. That's all mental stuff. Just ignore and move on. And that happens to me. happens to everyone. So you're reading something and go, oh, got this bad thought and then what I do is I move on and I notice within 10 to 15 seconds it's gone if the demons notice that you're becoming hopeless and upset and distraught about it then he'll keep on doing it once he sees that you just go on just do your cross move on the second one the second temptation we can get when we read the lives of saints is discouragement and hopelessness because we feel that their great achievements of asceticism, their remarkable faith 
and their endurance in all types of sufferings are beyond us. So we can become despairish. I don't have that faith. It's not that you don't believe they had it. You believe they've got it, but you're upset that you don't have it. So I might read the life of a priest. I'm a priest. Father's a priest. The other fathers there are priests. So we read in the life of a righteous priest how they would pray and how they were fixed in their prayer and how they even saw visions in the liturgy. And then I say to myself, I don't see that. So what do I do? Do I start pulling my hair, what it was left? What do I do? Do I say, oh, why haven't I got that? Or I don't have that faith. Most of the time I'm distracted. Nothing. Just put yourself down and say, I don't have that level. I don't have that level. But I don't have to go into craziness and start saying, what's the point? And there's no point. And that they reached high levels. Number three, fantasy and deception. Desiring to imitate the saints for the sake of glory or self-esteem. That we want to be like the saints because we want that glory, that self-esteem, that, oh, look at us, we can do miracles or whatever. Or that we're, tr and we even try to achieve these ascetical, their, their ascetical deeds by drinking water once every three days and having some bit of bread and trying to do big, these big things that are beyond us. We don't live in the desert. They never had children. You got children. They haven't got children. They didn't go to work. They didn't have trashy food like there is now. They weren't distracted with TVs, with all these pornographic things all over the place, wherever you go. Today, people's souls are very tired, very exhausted, and the devil tricks and says, you should do that. For the Lent, when it starts, why don't you do like they do in the monasteries, that, which, by the way, most monasteries don't do it, but some strict ones do. The first three days, no water, no food. And you've got galahs, sorry for the expression, who are going to work in trains, in buses, working hard, some physical labour, some are listening to lectures, some are doing very difficult things, nurses even, whatever, and they're having no oils and things like that because the saints used to do it. And as I've said before as a joke, then they wonder why they go, the ones that work in the office, why they go home and they've got these like squares on their head. Do you know what the squares are from? The imprint of the keyboards when they fall on the keyboards when they, <laughs> and they smash their heads on the keyboard because they, they actually faint from no food. These are all things which are silly. Today we will study unbelief and doubt. And in the next talk, we will look at discouragement and hopelessness. And God willing, the next one after that, maybe we can look at fantasy and deception. But today, because it's too much, I'm just going to... Is it ready? Oh, okay. So what we'll do is we'll have a 15-minute break for um, sandwiches and things like that. Some might say, well, why? Continue. Continue. Let's do the four hours straight. Let's do it. Don't worry about food. 
Don't worry about the sandwiches and the cheesels and what else you got over the juices and all that stuff there. That's not ascetical. I didn't invite you to my cave. I invited you to the hall. All right, have a, just a break, 15 minutes. So as I said before the break, I'm going to speak a little bit about unbelief and doubt when reading the lives of saints. Someone came up to me and said that they really liked that, and I mentioned that because they suffer from that particular temptation that they have unbelief or doubt, and then, that, then they get into despair, but also the other one where they get discouraged and hopeless, where they think, how am I going to reach those levels? That's next talk. But this talk, we can disbelieve or doubt the saints' miracles, the visions that they have, the visions that they have of demons, the battles that they have with the demons. Sometimes we can even doubt their sudden conversion to Christianity after leaving a really bad life, their endurance during sufferings, their endurance, uh, like, for example, sicknesses, self-martyrdom, that's when they inflict torture to themselves by staying in the sun all day or in the, on the cold. That's called self-martyrdom or white martyrdom. That's with our blood. Then there's persecution. We can marvel at how they were persecuted and how they took it. Martyrdom, we call that red martyrdom. That's when they're being tortured by others. And we can even doubt that they can help us, that they pray for us from heaven. All these things can come in and we shouldn't get disparish because even the saints had that. Now, when Saint Seraphim Sorov prayed 1,000 days and nights on the rock, and there's an icon where he's on a rock and he's praying for 1,000 days and nights, that's because God had taken away from him the grace, his faith. And he prayed to God to ask for it to come back. The higher one progresses in spiritual life, the more God permits these great temptations for us that are just you know lower we can have temptations but not to that level and that's enough for us to deal with so for example i'm going to read you just a list of saints that when we read their lives we can be just we can go through this unbelief and doubt Apostle John the Theologian, when you read his life, he was a first century, obviously, the beloved uh, disciple of Christ. And in his life, there were so many miracles, and especially the one where, at the end, tradition says he didn't die, and that he will come again later on, around the time of the Antichrist, together with two other saints. Do you know who the other two is? Prophet Elijah Prophet Elijah and Enoch, no? Enoch, yeah. Yeah. And the other two that they say the same thing. Saint Nicholas the Wonder Worker. So many miracles in his life. Fourth century hierarchy. Saint Anthony the Great. We can doubt the clairvoyance that he had, the visions of the demons that he used to have and how he used to deal with them. Great martyr Catherine third century, a lot of miracles in her life and supernatural things. St. John of Damascus, which I'm going to read later on in his life, there was a, one particular miracle which is remarkable, which is why we have the top icon here. 
of, of him. It's to do with that icon. He was a 7th century Syrian priest monk and confessor of the faith. St. Patrick, enlightener of Ireland, 4th century, equal to the apostles. St. Nina of Georgia, equal to the apostles, 4th century. St. Cosmas of Italia, equal to the apostles, 18th century priest monk. Great martyrs, George and Demetrius, 4th century. St. Ambrose of Optina, one can say, did he really, how did he know the things that when people used to see, meet him, he would know all about them and would predict their future? 19th century Russian elder. Unmercery healers, Saints Cosmas and Damien, whose memory celebrate today with the old calendar. And uh, Saints Vladimir and Olga, these are Russian royal saints. For example, Saint Vladimir had all these women and it was like a bit like a beast, very, very passionate, full of passions. And when he became Christian, he just gave all up and just kept one woman. If I remember, Anna, no? Anna, maybe, I can't remember the name. Saint Sava of Serbia, full of miracles in his life. He was a royal, he was a monastic, an ascetic, an hierarch, and equal to the apostles, enlightener of Serbia. Saint Mark of Ephesus, 15th century hierarch, confessor of the faith. Saint Xenia of Petersburg, she was an ascetic and a fool for Christ. Like, is it true that people used to abuse her and she didn't care? It's hard to believe when, if someone says to us one thing, we become really upset, one thing, and we just get tortured by it, and why'd they say that for, and I'm going to answer back, and I should have said this, and I should have said that. We can't take one thing, and yet these fools for Christ, they used to welcome to be ridiculed, hit. They suffered a lot. Remember that. So when we, when, when we get, like, for example, upset with someone says something to us or whatever, they disrespected us, and we get really fired up, think of the saints. Now I have to come to a very unfortunate part of the talk. I hope I don't contaminate you, but has to be said. This was from ABC News, April the 26th, 2014. The Catholic Church removed 93 saints from their universal calendar and revoked their feast days in 1969 when Pope Paul VI revised the canon of saints, that's the, the, the list of saints, and determined that some of the names had only ever been alive as legends or not enough was known about them to determine their status. Legends means that they were made up, like Mary Poppins or some other fairy tale or something like that. There was another article written on it, and they actually were saying that they weren't even real, a lot of these saints. For example, this is who they've taken off the list. St. Nicholas, St. Barbara, St. Christopher... St. George, St. Catherine, St. Marina, St. Denisius, St. Vlasios, St. Padalimon, St. Alexis the Man of God, St. Eustathios, St. Veronica, and St. Ephrosini. That's just some of them. I don't know what the 93 are, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're all the pre-schism saints. While the ones that came after, they don't get kicked off. 
The others say, oh, you can still believe in them, but you don't have to. It's unheard of things in the Orthodox Church. So after hearing that, you're going to have to have, a when you get home, a spiritual bath. Got to wash yourselves. How do you wash yourselves? With prayer, and say, ask God to help you to be cleansed of um, such blasphemy. That's, that's actually blasphemy, but you expect it. I don't really get that offended, because I would expect that they've they've lost tradition. Just like when I say to people, I'm not against women being made priests. Don't get upset. Just wait. <laughs> And get upset. I saw Father got a little bit the big man there. I don't want to get don't want to get mixed up with him. Just leave me a while. As long as they Protestants and everything else, I got no problems. They can have as they can have as many as they want. They can have animals. They can do whatever they want. As long as they're not orthodox. Does that calm you down? That's good. Thank you. What? So they can believe the Catholics can believe in it, but yeah, if they, but it's up to them if they want to believe the miracles or not. Yeah. Question: So how do we overcome the temptation of unbelief or doubt? How do we uproot these from our hearts? We do this by thoroughly reading the lives of the saints who have lived in our times or close to our times. By studying the lives of recent saints and holy men and women, we will see what is possible in our times through the same power of Christ. That is, the supernatural events, the miracles, etc., of the earlier century saints are similar to those of the recent saints. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. We have so many saints that lived in our times. It doesn't mean I'm going to be saved because of this, but I um, went to St. Paisios many times. I met Elder St. Porfirios once. And another father's here at the back. They saw St. Yakovos of Evia that was just recently canonized. They went there when they were young. There's just so many uh, saints, or even the ones that are earlier, Father here was saying that he met a person who personally knew St. John of Shanghai and San Francisco, because he, he died in 1966. St. Eustin Povich died in 1979. St. Nikolai passed away in 1952-3, somewhere around there. So we need to read those lives especially so that we can see that these things are not just what happened years ago and they're myths. And you'll see in the recent lives of saints that they did remarkable things. Now if you read the life of Saint Yakovos of Evia, who was just recently canonized just I think just a year or so, I'm not sure. 
in his life, that book there, he was seeing visions and saints and he would talk to St. David of Evia, who was a saint that he was there. And he would actually talk to him as if he was right in front of him and he would speak to him in a way like if he prayed, he didn't, and St. Yakvos didn't get what he wanted because he says, why? Why don't you give, why don't you answer my prayer and we become angry with him? It's like a relationship, a bold relationship. That's what the saints were. That was simple, beautiful, like that, to have that relationship. And St. John the Russian was just down the road. And he used to see visions of St. John the Russian. St. Paisios saw a vision of St. Ephemia and the Mother of God. And there are people still alive now that have experienced their miracles. Let's look at some of them that lived close to our times. We should read the life of St. John of Shanghai and San Francisco. 1966 he passed away. He was a Russian, hierarch, ascetic, and his relics are in USA. They're incorrupt. Do the Catholics have incorrupt relics? But they say they do, but I think if you read closely, they're wax dummies. And they have some bones inside. St. Porfirios, 1991, priest, monk, and elder. St. Paisios, 1994, monastic and elder. St. Justin of Serbia, uh, priest, monk, and confessor, 1979. St. Yakovos, he died in 1991, Greek Abbot, priest, monk, ascetic, elder. St. Nicholas Planas, he passed away in 1932. He was Greek, married priest. He used to serve everyday liturgy. And up to recently, there's probably people that knew him. I mean, that's a lot of years ago. That's uh, 68 and 20, 88. Probably not many that actually do, but up to a few years ago, people still knew him. I remember when I went to Aegina, where St. Nectarius was, and I met some Greeks there that were from the island, and they invited me back to their home. I wasn't a priest, just a lay person. And when I went, that was in the 80s. So that would have been 60 years after he passed away. And they told me that, it's a, bit, a little bit funny too, but so what happens in Greece, probably serve the same in all other countries, so they come, they're going from their fields, they had the fields were far away, different areas, and the, they would get onto their donkeys, and as they were traveling on their donkeys, they would sleep on the donkey, and the donkey would just go by itself. And Saint Nectarius, from wherever he was far away, he would bless them to have a safe trip. He would actually bless the villages that were on the, on the donkey, and things like that. And this was people that still knew him. St. John of Kronstadt, 1909. Back in the 60s and 70s, around the time that he was canonised, there were a lot of people that, that knew him. St. Luke, the Blessed Surgeon, 1961. Oh, I thought he died earlier. Russian hierarch, martyr, confessor. St. Gabriel, confessor and fool for Christ, 1995. Georgian priest monk. St. Amphilochios Macris, he died in 1970. He was just canonised in Greece. But we can also read the lives of those who led holy lives but have not yet been canonised. Elder Cleopa, 1998, Romanian priest, monk and elder. 
Elder Thaddeus, 2003, Serbian priest monk Elder, Father John Kristiankin, Russian priest monk, 2006. Blessed Yorondesa Makrina, I met her, 1995, Greek abbess, Eldris ascetic. Father Kosmas of Rigorio Monastery in Manathos, apostle to Zaire, 1989, he was a Greek priest monk. He converted there. I think I think they call the uh, the the Congo, Congo now. Is it? Yeah. So that was in Africa. Elder Joseph the Hesychus, 1959, Greek monastic elder. Now there's a life written by Elder Ephraim from Arizona, and there are people. Well, El, well, Elder Ephraim is still alive. He was his spiritual child. He lived with him. Talked about the miracles and the and the supernatural events that used to occur. Father Sarah Frimrose, 1982, American priest, monk, and elder. We need to read these lives of canonized saints and those that haven't been canonized. If you go to a spiritual father, for example, and you confess to him, and that spiritual father tells you, don't worry about the lives of saints, they're not important, just emphasise the gospel, things like that. What should you do? Starts with R. Run. Run for the hills. <laughs> Any clergyman who does not emphasise the lives of saints is not going to help you. It's very important. Now you might say, oh, you want everyone to come to you I don't do confession. I don't want to do confession, so don't worry about it. I'm not well, and I, I no, I don't want to do too much responsibility. The true Orthodox priests are those who emphasise and are living themselves in the lives of saints, and you can tell from their sermons. You can tell from their advice. They're always saying examples. Like they say, oh, you know, Saint so-and-so did that and this and helped people. That is the barometer, that's the indication. Now, some of you might say, oh, you're being judgmental, except I'm not judging. I'm telling you what the saints say. That's what the saints say. There's plenty of priests around. You've got to be, like you go to the doctor. I've gone to doctors. I went to do some doctors for years. Did they help me? No. Sometimes I wasn't sure if I was going to a doctor or to a butcher. <laughs> well, was it wrong to say, I'm not going to him anymore because I don't think he knows much? Am I going to say, oh, you're judging him? I don't, I don't like him. He doesn't, he's not helping me. And that's what Father John Christiankin said as well. He said, when you pick a spiritual father, take your time, find out who you like, go and try them out. If your soul is consoled, you feel comfortable, you stay. If you see that that person cares for your soul, that you feel comfortable with that person, stay. If we do that for doctors, even the teachers we do that, even for schools, People say, I want to put my child in a good school. That's got a group. 
Okay, you do it for schools, you do it for doctors, but not for your souls. It's a bit silly, isn't it? I think so. Okay, now we come to the part where I'm going to now read for the rest of the talk different lives that I got from the prologue, that I got from the Simona Petra uh, version, and I also used the other one, which is the Colorado group there. They produced the Great Synaxarian, and it's called The Great Synaxaristis of the Orthodox Church. It's a 14-volume set, one for each month for 12. They also got the Triodion and the Pentecostarian, where they explain all that. That's published by Holy Apostles Convent, Colorado. Now, those sets, they are, you know, if you're educated and you want to know more, things like that, you know, like, for example, January, because that's got a lot of, a lot of big saints in there, it's about that big, about, about the size of a telephone book. Some a little bit less, some a bit more. They are in full detail. It's got, like, footnotes, historical things, like... That's really if you are serious and you want to study more and, you're a, and you are a strong reader a bit, then you can get that. Some people say to me, it's a bit difficult for them, a little bit difficult. They use ancient language, a thousand of these as well. They don't like that. Some people don't like that. Uh, but some say to me that if I'm really keen, I'll read The Life of Same from the prologue. And then if I like it, I'll go to the Simono Petra version from Alexander Press. They'll read that. But then some people, very, very rarely, say sometimes I want to know more. And so they'll go to the other one and read. It might be, like, for example, I think St. George is around 85 pages. That's the full version. You like that, you do that. But at least you must get, my strong advice is the prologue of Ocrid, the two-volume set by, by Sebastian Press, and the other one is The Lives of Saints of the Orthodox Church, seven-volume set by Hyamak Macarius of Simonopetus, published by Holy Convent of the Annunciation of Our Lady, Orimilia Talkiliki, Greece, distributor, Alexander Press in Canada. Sorry, uh, is it in modern English or thousand those? Sorry? Is it in modern English? Yeah, modern. Or not thousand? Oh. No, no, no. I think it's that. Maybe some quotes from the Bible might be a bit, but it's generally you can read it. And uh, the other one I want you to get is the Patericon for Children, Potamitis Publishing. So that's P-O-T-A-M for Mary, I-T-I-S for Sam, Potamitis Publishing, Patericon for Kids. They're little booklets and they've got colour and there's 89 of them. And I've bought sets and given them for presents for people. I've just ordered five more sets now. The children love them. It's all full of colour, very simply written, and they've got all Serbian saints, Romanian saints, Greek saints, Russian saints, everything in there, St Luke the Surgeon. Such a wonderful set. And your children should read that. But not only that, some people have told me that as adults that they read them. Some that are a bit weak in reading, they'll read them. So what? Now, I'll give you an example. I studied maths, but when I went to my first school, they wanted me to teach some science, and I didn't do much science. And they gave me a year seven class, a year nine class to do science. 
But I never taught that. I only went up to a certain level in, you know, first year chemistry, physics. That's it. And I didn't even, I didn't even understand it properly. So I had to teach. I remember one topic was electricity. Even though I studied that electricity in the university for the first year, at the end, I still didn't understand the ins and outs of it. I just memorised, you pass. That's how it is, university. Got a good memory, you pass. Got a bad memory, you might not pass. So, that's what happened. And so I had this class and I had to teach that. So what did I do? I went and found baby books, primary school books, on those subjects. Any subject I taught in science, I would go back and read the easy books, children's books. Once I got that, then I got a better understanding, then I was able to come to the year nine class and was able to teach it. And by the way, my kids did better than the science teacher's kids. Why? Because I went baby way and then build up. Is that embarrassing? What for? You know, electricity is a flow of electrons. I go, oh, wow, I did first year physics. I didn't even know. Couldn't understand it really properly. Maps, I understood the ins and outs more, but not that. Plus, I tutored it. Even before I became a teacher, I was tutoring. But that one there, no. And even when a child would come to me, say, for tutoring, say they were in year 10, and then they say to me, oh, I'm going to do the school certificate back in those days. And I would say, OK, so they say, oh, can you prepare me for the school certificate? I go, oh, I've got to see first what you know. So I gave them a little bit of a test and basically didn't know much at all. And I said to them, look, I've got to start from year seven. I'm going to start from year seven and I'll build you up. Go, but, but, but I'm in year 10. I go, look, you like it, you like it, you don't, go, goodbye. That's the way I do it. I've got to go to year seven. So I was teaching them from the year seven books and they were leaving my house with this whole pile of year seven books. Was that embarrassing? It's embarrassing for them that they're doing year seven and they're in year 10. So they came to me and in the half yearly year 10, they got 22% for their half yearly exam. And now they want me in a couple of months when the school was going to be to prepare them to do school certificate in two months when they were 22%. I will teach you from year seven. And that's what I did. So they walked out. Some of them were proud. They, they, they left. No worries. Some of them that would be more humble, they accepted. I said, just trust in me and I'll do it for you. So they were doing year seven and building up to year eight and year nine, et cetera, et cetera. And lo and behold, when they did the school certificate and then they got the yearlies, 90%. 90% from 22% to 90%. Now, some of you might say, oh, you're showing off. A little bit. <laughs> A little bit. It's natural, isn't it? So 22% to 90%. But what I'm trying to say is, there's nothing wrong with reading children's lives of saints. For those who are like a bit weak in reading, or even if you haven't got time. Pictures are there, beautiful, why not? If you haven't got time, just read it through quickly and, that's your, and that can be your life for the day. Nothing wrong with that, or you can read them to your kids that are younger and then the children learn and you learn. There's 89 of them, and it's called Potamis Publications, they're around four... Uh, $4 each, American, I think, so um, 90 times 4 is 360 But when you buy two sets, then you get discount. I bought the five sets, and I got 50% off. And I think that that's a beautiful set that you should give your children to read, and you should read it as well. There's nothing wrong with that. 
So let's go now to the, the first one is Saint Venerable Father Cosmas, the Fool for Christ, 10th of June. This is what I got. And we're going to read it and we're going to see what can we get out of it. Why do we read the lives of saints? How does it help us? The son of a merchant, now a merchant class in Russia, I think, was like those who were involved in trade and business and all that. In, it's called a ver, ver, couturie, ver, ver, something like that. I'll spell it V E R K H O T U R I E. What does that show? I can't read Russian. That's, that's what it, it shows. I can't read. Does that matter? Does that matter that I don't even know where the place is? If I want, I can open up the speaking dictionary on the internet. It's not important for me. Or I can look up where it is. But sometimes I don't do that. If I want to do it, I'll do it. If I don't, I, it doesn't matter. Just get what you want to get out of it. And it says, St. Cosmas was an invalid from childhood and had to spend almost all his time at home. Full stop. What do we get from that? Invalid from childhood. People can despair if a parent gives birth to an invalid child. They can become despairish and woe at us and woe to the child and all these type of things. So what are we going to learn today? What should be our attitude? How should, what should be a person's attitude if they've got an invalid child? He made use of this infirmity to grow in prayer and in the holy virtues, most especially in compassion for the poor. So even though he was invalid, he used this to grow in prayer, had more time to pray, obviously, because he couldn't go out, and then he would acquire, he acquired the virtues and especially compassion for the poor. In other words, our infirmities, our disabilities do not prevent us leading a spiritual life unless someone has got intellectual disability where their mind's gone. Then those people are saved anyway. As long as they're baptised, they're saved. This person obviously had his mind, but he had some, looks like, physical infirmities, but it didn't stop him of leading a spiritual life. He very early showed signs of folly for Christ, like a fool for Christ. He, they usually do that so they can hide their virtues. He died in peace in about 1680 and miraculous healings began to be seen at his grave after the saint had appeared to people. His relics, which lie in the monastery of the holy protection of the Mother of God, are venerated by many pilgrims even to this day. This is a stab to those who believe that by doing tests while they're pregnant and if the child shows any signs of disabilities or something like that, you abort the child. That child has a potential to be born, to be baptised and to be saved. And so you're a mother and a father that has this, this question, you know, these feminists, they say, women's choice, women's choice. They don't give you choice. You go there, they just badger you. You say, you abort, there's no point. The child's sick, it's going to have this, it's going to have this, it's going to have that. 
abort the child, abort the child, and when you say no, I don't feel like they get very aggressive. Anyway, so there's no real freedom. But what you need to know is this. You may give birth. You may, because they've been wrong. Like Monica's um, mother, the child after her, the mother was pregnant and the doctor said, look, the child's got abnormalities and to abort the child. And she said, I'm not, I'm not going to abort it. She was Greek Orthodox. I'm not going to abort it. Oh, they said Down syndrome. It's going to be a Down syndrome child. And she says, I'm not doing it. And the child was born normal. They make mistakes continually. They are irresponsible people. And God especially will punish if they don't repent in the last judgment those who are abortionists. Those who performed abortions if they didn't repent and those who had abortions. And we see there that, look at this, the child became a saint. There was miracles at the grave. But one thing to remember, when those parents die and meet with their child, the child will be normal, will show no disability at all, whether it was intellectually disabled, whether it had Down syndrome. In the next life, the child will be normal, what we can say spiritually. Sicknesses are given to us by God for our good. I'm sick. Other people are sick. And people say when they ring me up, oh, I'm sick, I'm sick. I say, well, so am I. I'm sick too. And I say to them, when I'm a bit better sometimes, which is rare, but when I'm a bit better, it's like your mind flies into pride, pride and vainglory. Sometimes I'm scared to get better. I prefer when I'm sick. It keeps me more humble. But sometimes I'm a little bit better, sometimes, but I feel the mind begins to fly and fantasies and vainglories and this and that. So I say, God, whatever. And after I get sick, and even though it's hard, I say, I'm better off. That's why God gives us these problems. Feminists today, why did God allow us to have periods? We're disadvantaged. Men don't have periods. When women are going through those things, it's humbling. It's humbling. They become weak. They're vulnerable to temptations. And it's a way that God gives them a way to help them to have humility. And men and God gives men other things for them to have humility. Everything has purposes. Venerable monk Simon of Sinai, 25th of June. The Venerable Simon shunned the praise of men, preferring to be scorned. Or we can read it in a different way. The Venerable Simon rejected or disdained the praise of men. The saints hated praise, preferring to be disregarded, preferring to be despised. Now, what do we like? What do we like, if we're honest? If we're honest with ourselves, let's see who, who, who got the guts tonight. Who likes to be praised? How many people? Okay, few. Ooh. 
And who likes to be scorned? Tell us so that we can do an icon of you. So we can, <laughs> so we can venerate you. Because you're at the level of the saints. Some of you didn't have much guts. Got to be a bit more gutsy. Be more open. Of course we like being praised. As soon as anyone just, even someone just looks at us funny, we can become like um, completely out of it. Therefore, on one occasion, sorry, Simon learned that a certain ruler of the people wanted to see him and that he was coming. Therefore, some clerics went to the elder, to St. Simon, and said to him, Ava, Ava means like elder, it's an ancient word. Ava, prepare yourself because the ruler has heard of your fame and he is coming to be blessed by you. The saint answered, Yes, I shall get ready. He then put on his old and torn habit, which had a great deal of stitch marks and patches, etc. He then took some bread and cheese, sat outside the door of his cell, and ate gluttonously. You know gluttonously means? Like that. Like that. Making sure there was crumbs in his beard and some smudged cheese. The ruler arrived with his group and seeing the way he was dressed and eating, disdained Simon and said, this is the famous hermit of whom we've heard so much. Like there was a question. And straight away they departed. Thus did the man of God desire the praise of God and not the praise of men. See what we learn from that? It's a practical example. Yes, it says in the Bible to flee, to flee praise, etc., etc. But this is examples. Those examples are powerful. Would you, can I ask the question again? So, let's see. Hands up those who don't like to be put down. Oh, more hands now. See? See the effect of the life? Once I read the life, we had more hands come up. We don't like being put down. That's just human. That's what's called the fallen nature. It's our fallen nature, and that's what God wants us to do, to struggle against that. Put ourselves down. St. Ephthemius, the wonder worker, 18th of April. To escape from the marriage prepared for him by his parents, St. Ephthemius entered a monastery. Now, this is interesting because we have a bit of a problem, a contradiction. In some lives of saints, we read that the saints were told by their parents to stay and get married, and they listened. And we read in other lives of saints that the parents told them to stay and get married, and they didn't listen. For example, St. Sava of Serbia, he didn't listen. He left his parents. Others, we read, that they were obedient and they married out of obedience to their parents. St. Paisius, I think, answers this question to some extent. Firstly, it's up to each person how God enlightens them and what's their spiritual level. But St. Paisius said a good example. They asked him, Elder, what happens if a person wants to become a monk but his parents don't bless him to become a monk. What should he do? And he said, well, obviously from the lives of saints, they could leave, they don't need the blessing. But if they're a little bit weak 
a bit emotional people, etc., when they come to the monastery and when things start going wrong, they can start saying, woe to me, this is because I left without the blessing and the devil will use that against them to knock them around and to make them leave their monastic life. And therefore he said better for them to stay. So it's all different for different people, different levels, etc. This saint, he left. Saint Ephthimius entered a monastery. There he showed an exemplary zeal for the service of the brothers in various obediences. When he learned that they wanted to make him abbot, he fled from the monastery in order to escape from human glory and went to a solitary place, like a secluded place. Again, this contradicts because we read that some people were called to be uh, abbots and abbesses and they accepted, while others said, I'm not going to do it, and they ran away. Everyone is different. You can't just have written formulas. It depends on the person's level, it depends on his spirit, and it depends on a lot of things. We see that some people were asked to become bishops and they said, no way. And they would even become a schemer, a great schemer, because when you become a great schemer, you shouldn't become a bishop, so that they can say, leave me alone. While others took it and wanted it, because they wanted to serve the church, etc. I could have become a monk in Mount Athos. I didn't want to. That was my decision. Because will God punish me because I didn't go for the hire? No. He leaves us free. We have freedom. He doesn't force us. So he lived there an extremely severe ascetic life which drew divine favour on him and he received the gift of working miracles. He gave sight to the blind, raised the dead and poured out God's consolation on all of the afflicted. He entered into rest in peace in great old age. That's the end of the life. I want to make a comment. Why did God give him all these gifts? Was it because of his, it says, his severe, extremely severe ascetic life? Was that why God gave him gifts? Did you know that many people that became heretics, deceived people, and later on some of them committed suicide, etc.? Do you know that a lot of them were great ascetics? Great asceticism is, is good, but it needs to be there needs to be a prerequisite for that. And the prerequisite is that he avoided human glory. So he wasn't rewarded just for his asceticism. He was rewarded with miracle working because of his being careful of vainglory. Avoiding human glory, this is my, my own point, avoiding human glory is greater than ascetical deeds which can lead one into pride. If we desire gifts in order to receive human glory, then anything we will receive in this particular state will be demonic. And, and the devil can give us gifts, but they're demonic gifts. That's why I'm against this too much fasting with people in the beginning. Then we must learn humility. We must learn to work on that first, because if we haven't, as soon as people start doing fasts, prostrations, prayer ropes, etc., that will 
be the fertilizer for pride and vainglory. And it's very dangerous. Uh, but the saints, some people say, the saints were able to fight their vainglory, etc., because of their ascetic deeds. No. If you read, you'll notice that before anyone was blessed to go and live in the desert and lead a very extreme ascetical life, the Holy Fathers, the abbot of the monastery or the, or the abbots, etc., they first wanted to see if those people that wanted to be live in the desert on their own, were they obedient? Were they humble? Were they aware of the temptations of vainglory and pride, etc.? Because if they are aware of those things, then they go into the, into the desert, the demons will make mincemeat out of them. The demons don't care if you do fastings and prostrations, etc. They like it. As long as you don't have humility. Do it, and he'll even help you. Like the example I've told you before, there was a lay person who, while he was living in the world, he was doing um, 500 or 1,000 prostrations a day. And he had zeal, he would do it. When he went to the monastery, the spiritual fathers told him, look, no, we don't want you to do a thousand. We want you to start off only on 50. He goes, but, but I'm, I've, I'm used to 500. Just 50. I don't remember the full figures, but it was a low figure. Just 50. So he listened. Because it was out of obedience, at the end he found that that 50 was like someone was putting a thousand volts of electricity. It was so hard for him. He came back to those and goes, I can't do the 50. What do you mean? I can't do it. It's just excruciating for me to do it. Why was I able to do it in the world of a thousand? Because you did it out of pride and because the devil helped you. Why did the devil help me? He isn't doing prostration, but I have an icon. Isn't that a big thing? Like I'm doing my cross, I'm bound down. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. So we're doing that. I'm asking for mercy. So, no. Worthless. Why? Because it's done with vainglory and pride. And that's why the demons love it. That's what we learnt from that life. Let's go on. St. Adalian, the comedian, 14th of April. St. Adalian lived during the reign of, of Maximian. <coughs> Uh, 286 to 305. He was a professional actor-comedian playing in pagan theatres, both tragedies and comedies, where he imitated the sufferings and dramas of others by means of his words and actions. He was an actor. Also, for entertainment, he would mimic, he would imitate and mock Christian ceremonies such as baptism, liturgy and the martyrdom of saints during their time when they were resisting to listen to the emperor, to worship idols, etc. One day, when he had been hanged on a scaffold, pretending to be tortured, he suffering wounds and lacerations as cuts, because of his refusal to offer sacrifice to the gods. So he was saying, they were making fun, he was saying, I'm not going to sacrifice to the gods, and they were 
whipping him and things like that. And he was saying, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I believe in Christ. And everyone was laughing. One can say, well, what a devil he was. We can judge like that and say, oh, what a devil he was to be able to do that. No way he's ever going to, how can he be saved? He's mocking the baptism. He's mocking the liturgy, the body and blood of Christ. He's mocking the uh, things. He's, he's finished. When the audience was applauding the realism of the act, he was suddenly touched by grace. He was suddenly enlightened by God and cried out to the crowd to be silent. He then declared in a loud, clear voice that he truly believed in Christ and that he was not acting. We have a few examples of that in our lives as saints. The magistrate who was present during the show demanded that he take back what he said if he wanted his life to be spared. But Adalian persisted in his confession of Christ as, true, as the true God. He was therefore cast in, onto a large fire and carried off the crown of martyrdom being burned alive. Thus the Blessed One met his end as the champion in an authentic martyrdom and truly received the crown of martyrdom. What do we learn from that? We have to be careful. We can judge a person's actions if they're blaspheming, if they're doing disgusting things. We have people that were raping nuns. We had people that burnt down monasteries. We had people that were killing thousands of Christians, torturing them, and later on, with one thing, they were enlightened, and then they became Christians, and God forgave them all those things that they did. And that's telling us that what we do is we can say that action of him making fun of the liturgy of baptism of the martyr, that's wrong. That's a sin. That's bad. But what we don't have the right to say is he'll never change. He's, that's it. He's gone. He's fixed. He's headed for hell where he will suffer for eternity. We, we haven't got the right to do that. And that's why these lives are very... I read in the life of St. Matthew the Apostle where the, the king at that time, he was crazy. Like St. Matthew would do a miracle, he wasn't moved. And another miracle and raising people from the dead and another miracle, another miracle. And one can say, this person is fully a demon and un because the demons can't repent. Or they won't repent, they can't repent. That's it, they're finished. Demons will not repent. That's uh, orthodox teaching. But we have been given by God the ability that we can confess, repent, just like the thief on the cross and many other saints, as we're going to read. We don't have a right to make those judgments because we put ourselves in God's place, and that's wrong. And that king, whatever he was, was St. Matthew, went on and on and on and even killed St. Matthew, from what I remember. And then later on, he repented and he took on St. Matthew's name and became Bishop Matthew and was saved and became a saint of the Orthodox Church, that beast, one can say, that did all that bad. Never say that a person... It can't change. That's blasphemous. And look, I fall into that. I'm sure a lot of you might say, 
about someone or maybe you've got trouble with your husband or your wife, you might say, oh, they're never going to change. That's it. They're, they're baked. That's, that's wrong. That's, that's taking God's... We're taking the position of God. Only God knows that. We can judge their actions, but not with a bad spirit. There's two ways of doing it. We can say, like the apostles said to Christ, because they didn't repent, the people goes, should we send down fire on them to burn them, just like uh, Elijah did? And then Christ said, you don't know what you're talking about, no. But, sorry? I came to save the sinners. I came to save sinners. However, in the lives of saints, we see that some saints did send down and punish people. Why? What's the difference? Why did Christ say that? Maybe they're against the gospel. No. It's the way we say it. We can say those people are unrepentant and what they're doing is wrong and if they continue, they may go to hell. But your heart does not have hate. Your heart feels sorry for them. Your heart wants them to repent and change. And you even can say, which the saints did, God, send them something to make them repent. Bring, them, bring on them some suffering for their repentance. They help them. While the apostles said, bring down fire and punish them. That's why he says, you don't know what you're talking about. See the difference? It's the difference in our heart. And people get mixed up and go, oh, see, it means you shouldn't judge, you shouldn't judge. Of course we can judge. We judge what's called in Greek orthikris, which means correct judgment, to katakrisis, which means wrong judgment, bad judgment. It's in the heart. I've said, for example, as a priest, I've said, I think God needs to send that person something severe. Something severe. But I'm not saying it because I've got hate. I'm not saying it because I want that person to go to hell. I'm saying it because I want that person that perhaps if this is the way, if God sends him to become paralysed or something happens to him, then for bring, to bring him to salvation. And priests do have the ability, they've been given that by God, that they can call down those things. You've got no idea. That's why a lot of people say, don't be too close to the priest and don't be too far. Because from their mouth to God's ears. You anger, you've got to be careful. You anger the priest, got to be careful. Maybe by accident as well, he might say something. And whatever you tie on earth will be tied in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will lose in heaven. For example, Archimandrite Haralambos, Vasilopoulos, he put together all these lives of saints in Greece. He died around the, uh, about the 80s, I think. And he put together all these beautiful lives of saints, simple little pamphlets. And what happened was, I know you're going to get shocked, but this is the truth. They wanted to build a playground in front of the church, to take the property of the church, something like that, and build it in front of the church. And he said, no, don't do that. And this person was going to persist in, now we're going to do, we're going to do, we're going to do it. Of course, he prayed for him, he spoke to him nicely, etc., et and he wouldn't budge. So what did the blessed man do? He lifted his hands to heaven and said, 
may God's curse be on you. And his children died, and etc., etc. It was very, very bad. Because, well, you might say, oh, but how did he do that? Because even, if, even though he said that, it was more for him to repent. You go, but the children died. Well, maybe they're saved. We don't know. And we see throughout the lives of saints examples of those things. People think that priests just, just do baptisms and things like that. You don't know what you're talking about. There's yes. A prayer, isn't it, Father? There's a prayer when we read them and people say there is a curse from the priest. Uh, yes. When a person's died, there's prayers. There's a <clears throat> canon. There's prayers before someone dies and the prayers after they've died. And part of that says if they are under the curse of a priest or their parents, absolve them, forgive them, etc. Don't play with fire. But that happens after the person remains and when the person, if the priest does do that, he has to have in his heart that this is the last means to help that person to repent and to stop it. And that person repented. See, you might say, oh, but the kids died, but the kids might be saved. And he's saved. Now, some of you might get scandalised and say, oh, what's that? That's not love. That... Calm down. <laughs> Don't become crazy. It's just like when it says in the canons that if a woman has a miscarriage, they're still given a penance because there might be, there's some sins there or something that may have happened or whatever. The church has that. And you go, no, that's not that. These canons are inspired by God. They're not man-made. Don't judge God. There's reasons. Don't put yourself above the church. You want to put down political things. You want to put down Trump. You don't agree. You want to put down Short and whatever his name was. You can put him down and all. You can say things. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like that way. I don't like the way the Liberals are doing it. Labors are doing that. Democrats and Republicans and well, that's okay. That's free speech. Don't put down the church. You can put down the human aspects of the church when you see some wrong things. That bishop should not be praying there with the Jews. The Jews don't even believe Christ the Messiah. They believe the Messiah is going to come. But it depends on what's in your heart, where you're wounded with the scandals that he's doing and you're praying at the same time, God enlighten him, etc. That's the correct spirit. Not like, oh, look at him. He's praying with the Jews. He can go to hell and he's going to think and he's going to suffer and burn and in, you know, in cauldrons in hell and things like that. That's not the right spirit. Now, this is a beautiful life. How much are we learning? See what I mean? The Encyclopedia of Orthodoxy. And I'm just reading abbreviated versions. Imagine if you read 30, 40 pages of it. Holy Father Basil of Rizan. I don't know if that's how you say it. April the 12th. Saint Basil began his episcopal ministry in Murum, Murum, something like that. One of the oldest Russian cities. Because he led a life free of all worldly care, Edifying, in other words, inspiring the people with the example of his virtues, the devil wishing to give the impression 
that the bishop was living in sin, this is a very good story because when a priest or bishop does work, in other words, when they work to save souls, they're opened up to the demons. The demons will attack. If you're a married priest, they could attack your wife, they can attack your children, parishioners, committee members. Hmm, you can relate? I'm sure you can. If you're a monastic, then they can attack your, even your monks, your nuns, if you're a abbess. As soon as you're working for souls, that's it. That's it. And you might say, but why? Why does God do that? But for our good, he allows that to happen. It's all with his permission. If a leaf doesn't fall without his permission, then why would we not have the why wouldn't it be his permission that we get slandered and but by getting slandered doesn't that mean that people will not will um hate us and will look down at us? That's his business. So God allows things to happen. Let's have a look here. What did he do, the devil? Something really bad. But remember, brackets, with God's permission. The devil, wishing to give the impression that the bishop was living in sin, took the form of a young girl who appeared at the bedroom window of the Episcopal residence. If you don't read the lives of saints, how would you know that? How would you know that? The people and the boyars, I think that's how you say it, that's like the high up nobility or something. Is that right, Gregory? Did I say it correct? Boyars? Where is he? Is he here today? Where's he oh, gone? Yeah, how do you say it? Boyar. Boyar. I'll never get that Russian accent. <laughs> I just can't do it. I just said, uh, it doesn't matter. It's a bit funny. I didn't say it right. Yeah. The people and the boyars, whatever, of the city, outraged at the sight, accused the saint of living an immoral life and decided to punish him without going through an ecclesiastical court. What they should have done is, that's what they thought he was doing, reported to the synod, and the synod deals with it. These people were so outraged, they just jumped to conclusions straight away and they said, see, we're going to take the law in our own hands. One day when the assembled crowd had seen the girl fleeing from the bishop's house, the rumour grew, accusations were thrown around, and some even threatened to kill the unfortunate bishop who was protesting his innocence. There's two things there. Some saints did not protest their innocence. They remained quiet. He did. Why? Because I think because he had a diocese and this scandal can, can knock people around. So he spoke up and he said that. Other saints didn't, didn't speak up at all. They just took it. You made that girl pregnant. Nothing. But the monk that they were accusing was actually a woman dressed up like a monk. So there's no way. And she didn't say anything. And at the end, when she died, they undressed her to put her in, like, clean and what they do, and they discovered she was a woman. It was a woman. Greater glory for her. But she never had a flock. Sometimes you've got to speak up. Sometimes you don't, sometimes you do. He spoke up. I'm sorry, I didn't know. It's no, I'm not living with a girl. Woman. 
In the end, he obtained a delay until the next day at three o'clock and the crowd disappeared and then he kind of got them to leave him alone at least for the next day. I want to confess something, my mistake. I like this confession. See, I can give the squiliki thing in Greek, which means the worm, you know, I'm a sinner. I, I, can't, I don't like that type of stuff. You know, I remember those stories I've told you. Um, one woman said, I'm just a worm. But then when you would try and contradict her, that worm would grow teeth. <laughs> and she would actually go like that. She would actually go like that and she, like her teeth, because no one's going to tell me what to do. So I used to say that she's like a worm with teeth. <laughs> it's easy to do that. Some people even sign their names, you know, uh, in Christ, love from John, brackets, sinner. <laughs> so cheap. So it makes me sick. I tell, you what's, I tell you what will show humility. When we make a mistake and we say, sorry, that's wrong. I made a mistake. Forgive me. That one is not cheap humility because that's hard. As you know, some of you, um, all of us, when we sometimes um, do something wrong and we know we're wrong, but yet the ego in us doesn't want to admit it. No, we don't want to admit it. And then we say, you know, to your husband, to your wife, to someone else, whatever, and you say, forgive me, I was wrong. That's true humility. But the worms and the sinners and those things are, are cheap things. Anyway, let's go on to this part. I'm going to read something from the arena. I'm going to stop the story, a little bit of a digression, to show you how things can play on our minds could be demonic, it could be just our own mental mental illness. And remember, we are worse than the past because many of you, like I think I just missed the first few years of television, but many of you are young and therefore you will maybe put in front of the television maybe as soon as you came home from the hospital, which means the mind has been damaged, sick from fantasy, from the vision of the television. And actually they say that the lights from the television uh, University of Sydney study showed that the child can get brain damage similar to when someone's got physical brain damage. It's very bad. That's why even the World Health Organization, they're saying at least the first two years not to show TV. At least we got to that level. Obviously I say as much as you can, as much as you can. Five, six, seven, you know, it affects the mind. Because of that, a lot of the people today are mentally ill. And they have a very active fantasy. They don't know how to differentiate reality from lies, fantasy. So if Saint Ignatius says, Saint Pimin the Great relates that a certain monk, this is back in 1,500 years ago. There was no TV then. Imagine if this happened to this monk. Imagine what's going to happen to us. St. Pimin the Great relates that a certain monk carried away by zeal was subjected to the following temptation. When he means zeal, 
he was a big faster and he's all these ascetic, external ascetics, but wasn't working on his internal. He saw another monk lying on a woman. For a long time, he wrestled with the thought that urged him to stop them from sinning. At, le at last, he gave them a kick, went up to them and gave them a kick with his foot and said, stop it. Then he realised that it was two bundles of hay. <laughs> what does that mean? It means that he was spiritually unhealthy and he had these suspicions already in his mind and the devil convinced him that what he saw from far, oh, that looks like, oh, that must be that monk and he's with that woman. So, and then it wasn't, it was that. And that's how the devil can inspire us. When you've watched TV, that inspiring is easier. Like, say the devil has to make out of a scale of 1 to 100, he has to put effort around, say, 20. 20 make an effort to bring fantasy into someone's mind. If the person's spiritual, then that's harder. He's got to put more effort. But if a person is, was saturated by visual from the TV, etc., he has to put in effort of around one. It's simple. There was one sick person who led a sinful life. That's okay, he changed, and he um, started to lead a spiritual life. And he said about someone who was a, a monk, a priest monk somewhere, and somewhere in the world, doesn't matter where, he said to his brother, he goes, oh, you know that priest monk? There are pictures of him having sexual relations with other men. I know, sorry, it's disgusting, but I'll give you the example because it's a very, very strong example. He said there was pictures. And so when I found this out, I said to the brother, I said, can you ask him, did he actually see the pictures or he heard these pictures? So he asked him and he said, no, no, he said that he saw the pictures. Uh, and, I, and I knew the person he was referring to and that was not true at all. And I said to the brother, I said, you know, I think what's wrong with him is I think, I think he's got homosexual problems. I think, it's, I think it's in his head, he's obsessed with them. To make up that he saw these pictures, I, I said, um, look, believe you me, I said, he will fall. He will, at the end, become what he accused that priest, monk, whatever he was, of, be, of being. Years went past, and what happened? He left the spiritual life, went over to maybe San Francisco, which is full of that life, and he became an active gay person. Is that, like, remarkable? You might say, you're a prophet. No, no, not a prophet. It's logic. It's logical. Now I'm going to say one more thing and then we'll move on to make more of a shock. The person I'm talking about was a monk. He was a monk. He said that, that he saw pictures of, while he was a monk. He was sick. Our minds are sick, all of us. Some more, some less. And we've got to be careful of our minds. That's why we need to cultivate 
not no oils and not external things. We need to especially cultivate humility. We have to fight self-trust because when the devil sees us humble and we are fighting self-trust, he doesn't have that much power over us. But if we've got pride, if we've got vainglory, if we've got self-trust, we're finished. That's what he had. And he led him to believe that. I went to an island in Greece once and there was a monk there and he was crazy, full of fantasy, self-trust, disobedient to the abbot completely and he just kept on going on and that person and that person's doing this and that person goes with women and that person goes with men and that person goes with boys and that just go on and on and on and I knew, not a prophet, I knew that there's something wrong with him and what did I find out? And he was a great schemer, he wasn't a priest, great schemer. He took off his rasa, he rejected his monasticism, and he became, he then later on around the island, he would, people would see him walking around with a handbag, dressed up like a woman, became like a transvestite. So once someone told me, as a priest, someone told me about a bishop, and they said, oh, that bishop leads a bad life. So I went and spoke to the bishop that ordained me, Serbian, Bishop Artemios, back in those days, and I said to him, um, oh, I heard this, this, and this. And he said to me, did you see it? I said, no, 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 your eminence, no. Did you see it? I said, no, but, but, but. I was very young then, uh, but that's what, did you see it with your eyes? I said, no. And then he said, even if you see it with your eyes, his examples, he said, still don't believe it. You've got to be careful of that. And I've learned a lot from that. I learned a lot from that. And now I avoid that. We have active fantasies and the more we have pride, the more we don't struggle with the passion of pride and vainglory, etc., ego, the more the devil comes along and just whispers, this priest did this, this priest did that, that did that. That's why the canons have a rule. The canon says, if a priest is accused of a sin, whatever the sin is, whether men, women, children, whatever the accusation is, there has to be three Christians with impeccable reputations, pious, orthodox Christians that lead a spiritual and holy life, then it can be examined. Three, for that reason. Because of this, because of this. Because of what I just said about the monk with the two bushes there, the other monk there, the transvestite one, the other guy, what did he do again? I forgot now. One, oh, I can't remember. So, oh yeah, the gay one. That's right. All these things, accusing people. That's why. We don't get someone who doesn't even lead a spiritual life, hardly communes, doesn't hardly pray, doesn't read the lives of saints, 
watches law and order, watches Americans Got Talent, Britain's Got Talent, Pakistan's Got Talent, <laughs> and all of a sudden they're going to go to the bishop with their dyed hair, with their pants, and say, Vladiko, your eminence, whatever, there's Puta. I know for a fact that the priest has fallen and done this and this and that. Now, if the bishop is silly, he'll listen to him. And some bishops do listen to them and start this whole persecution of their clergy for no reason. When the bishop should say, excuse me, what? What's your life? What evidence do you have? Where's your life? Bring me three pious, orthodox Christians of impeccable reputation and then we'll look at it. Sorry for saying those stories, but they're true stories. And I know because I was present with a lot of them. All the stories I gave you, I was there, except for the one with the two bushes. I didn't live that. I wasn't alive then. St. Basil celebrated an all-night vigil in his chapel and then went to the Cathedral of the Annunciation and prayed fervently in front of the icon of the Mother of God. That's beautiful. That's what the saints do. That's what we all should do. Before anything, before any major decision or when temptations come straight away, we run to the Mother of God, to the church, to the liturgy and pray, ask for commemorations, etc. Holy Bishop, the first thing he did was that he celebrated an all-night vigil in his chapel and then went to the Cathedral of the Annunciation and prayed fervently in front of an icon of the Mother of God. Probably was a miraculous icon. Then, placing all his hope in the Most Holy Mother of God and taking the icon in his arms, he went to the river Oka, or Oka, whatever, where the people and the boyars were waiting for him, ready to drive him out. The saint then took his mandia, how do you say it in Mandia? That's the purple that's the purple cloth that the bishops wear, the long ones that go on the ground. He got that. Abbots wear those things too, but some of them. Spread it on the river and got into it as though on a raft, holding the icon in his hands. There's something we go, can that be true? How can that be true? So we have the doubt. Or how can the devil appear? Some even say, does the devil even exist? I like what St. Nikolai Verimovich says. You want to know the devil exists? Start leading a spiritual life. You'll find out very quickly. Start leading an authentic spiritual life. You will find out whether he exists or not. I remember once when someone said to me, they went to Manathos, they went to a monastery, St. Denisius Monastery. The abbot there was Elder Halarambos. They've got a book about him. He was a spiritual child of Elder Joseph. And the person was there in the Sonona, in the room where the, where the beds are for visitors. So while he was there and he was awake, suddenly his bed started shaking. Then the sheets started flying in the air. And he just started praying, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy, Lord Jesus Christ. And then he ran to the abbot after that. And he goes, he goes, Elder, what happened? What's going on here? And then the elder Herlarambo said, <laughs> let's laugh in. Huh. Why is he laughing? He says, that's just the devil. 
goes, what do you mean? I got scared. He goes, well, he used to own you. Because that person led a sinful life before and then he came to the church. He goes, he used to own you. And now he's trying to scare you to get you out of here because he knows you're going to get benefit. Another person went to St. Sava in the desert in um, Jerusalem. He was in the room. It was in the night, just before the service. Something fell on him. And he was left paralyzed. And he said, Lord Jesus Christ, and I've got to miss him. Just kept on praying, praying, and then it left. He was awake, ran to the abbot. And guess what he said? Ha ha, that's just the devil. Same thing. It's like you're hearing a recording. But that's how they, that's how they look at it. He goes, he used to own you, now he wants to get you this and that. And it was scary. Then he had to go from his room to the church. And what happened was, they got no lights there. It's in the desert. He didn't have a torch. So he had to go from his room to the church, all down the stairs, in pitch dark, after he was attacked. Just laugh. <laughs> the abbot was Seraphim. I think um, he was living in that monastery for 60 years or more. So he was holding the icon in his hands. He thus went quickly upstream against the current. Seeing this miracle, the inhabitants of Murom cried out, weeping, O holy Basil, Bishop of God, forgive your sinful servants. They realised that they judged him, that they were tricked. The saint arrived in this way at Rizan, where he was welcomed with great solemnity by the people who asked him to stay there. So, the city that he was in, where the people saw the women and this and that, and the place that he went were all in his diocese. But the archdiocese was in the other city where he was living when they saw the woman. Just like here, I'm in the Russian church, the archdiocese is in Sydney. The Greeks have the archdiocese in Sydney. Serbia, I think, the Serbians have got the archdiocese in Sydney. From that time onwards, the episcopal seat was transferred from Muram to Rizan. And the icon taken there by the saint is venerated in the cathedral. The saint changed the premises of the archdiocese to that city because of what they did. After several years spent peaceably in Rizan, St. Basil had to flee from the Tatar invasion to another city. It was there that he entered into rest in peace in 1295. On June the 10th, 1609, about 300 years later after his death, his incorrupt relics were discovered. St. Basil gives his, gives his assistance, especially to those who call upon his aid before a journey by land or sea, obviously because this is our ancient life, and we can add now air as well, to travellers. By reading that, does that help us ex explain a few things? That's why Father Seraphim Rose, in his soul after death and all those books that he wrote, The Religion of the Future, he uses lives of saints because he, he believed in that a lot. What does that explain to us? Hmm, maybe that might explain 
the green Martians. That might explain the UFOs. That might explain the visions of the dead that supposedly come to the seances. So everyone's there around the table. The table has a crystal ball. Next to the crystal ball, the credit card machine. <laughs> so they're all there and they're praying and they're whatever they're doing, seance, and suddenly someone appears from the dead. Now that might be a projector <laughs> or it might be the demons that can appear as angels, as dead people, as women, as men, as etc. That helps us. You know that the that the Pentagon, because there's so many events of these UFOs, they examined a lot of this. They called it the blue something, I can't remember it now. And they examined a lot of these uh, UFO phenomena things. And what they what they discovered, believe it or not, is that there's like a realm in a realm. That's like there's something within our own realm in the sky. And that's basically the teaching of the church that the demons inhabit the air. So a lot of these rockets and these things which they see or flying saucers and all that are demons. That's why they can't explain how it goes like this, like this, and do all these actions and disappearing, but they're on the radar, etc. It's that. They don't know exactly because obviously they don't know orthodox teachings. But that explains it. Simple. Do people from outer space exist? No, they're demons. Can the dead come back from the dead? No, they're demons. Look what we learn. I've got another one, God willing, in the next talk of a catacomb saint from Russia, you should see there what the demons did appearance and things like that. Can you see why we need the lives of saints? But why do we need the lives of saints? It says in the Bible that even Satan can, can appear as an angel of light. We read that. Yeah, that's true. But it really hits when you read this and you go, oh, I think I understand now what it means. They can appear as angels, people, etc. Okay, we'll, we will have a five minute hydration drink, walk around a bit, and then we just, after that, we've got one more hour to go, and then we eat. Okay? Blessed Daisia, May 10th. Daisia was a wealthy Christian maiden in Egypt. She decided not to enter into marriage and instead distributed all her property to the monks of the desert. After she gave away all her possessions, she began to live a life of debauchery, of immorality. So this woman was a pious woman. She didn't want to enter into marriage. And instead, she gave away her property, her money, she was rich, to the monks of the desert, to the monasteries. 
After she gave away all her possessions, for some reason she began to live an immoral life. That does happen to some people when they, out of their zeal, they might give uh, money to the churches, to the monasteries, to the poor, etc. And then later on they can be tempted by the demons to say, why did you give it away and you could have kept it and things like that. She obviously was tempted, but she went further. She became so upset about it that she began to... Maybe she got angry with God. I don't know the full story. I haven't got the full account of this one. But she began to lead a life of immorality. Uh, learning of this, the hermits begged Ava John the Dwarf, a famous saint, to go to Alexandria where this woman was leading a bad life. This he did and began to weep before Thaisia. When she heard that the elder was crying because of her sins, she repented and immediately left home and everything she owned and withdrew into the wilderness with the saint. Let me tell you that this is a very, very important life because all of us get confused of how do we correct someone who's leading a bad life? How do we correct them? How should we speak to them? Because we're full of passions, a lot of times when we go to correct someone, our passions get mixed up, as St. John of Cronstadt says, we get angry and the thing becomes worse. We can say to someone, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. Sex before marriage is bad, you shouldn't be doing that, that's bad, you're going to go to hell, that's not a very good thing, and be strict, thinking that we are like the saints. And some saints did use strict words. But that's after they used other ways as well. A lot of times when we try to correct someone, we pretty much go full on to correct them. And that's not good. Saint Nicodemus, actually in, in a book that he wrote on Christian morality, he actually does give a very, very good section on this type of thing of correcting Christians that are not doing proper lives, they're not leading proper lives. And he said, uh, similar here where, look at this, where you might have missed it. When she heard that the elder was crying because of her sins, she repented immediately, left home and everything she owned, left her sinful life and withdrew into the wilderness with the saint. We have to show when we're trying to correct someone that we care for their soul. We have to say to them, I'm concerned for you. I'm very upset because I'm, I fear for your soul. And talk in a more painful way. That's including to your children if they say are leading a bad life when they're young or even when they get older, teenagers, whatever, and they're leading lives, there might be drugs, sexual, sexual sins and things like that, going out, getting drunk, etc. 
you can speak harshly, but is that going to work? Or you can speak with concern and love and care. And that usually is very effective in helping a person change their lives. And that's what St. John the Dwarf did. They called him Dwarfling because he was short. One night, while Taisia was sleeping and St. John stood at prayer, he saw angels descend in a great light and take the soul of Taisia. St. John learned that her sudden but deep repentance was more pleasing to God than the long years of external repentance of many hermits. That there are hermits that live in the desert, which they lead these ascetical lives, but they're not cultivating the inner life, especially that of repentance. But her, even as she led such an evil life, her repentance was so deep that God accepted that as being higher than those who were leading lives which were more external. That's why the modern Holy Fathers explained to us, modern meaning recent, that our prayers, for example, should not be centred on trying to feel things and trying to experience what the ancient saints used to feel. No. It should be based on repentance. That's the safest. When you do prayers, if you feel that your prayers are not based on repentance, but they're based on uh, feelings or how you feel, and like, that's dangerous. And that's why I did the, the talks, talks 39 and 40 on prayer, and then 41 and 42 on deception in prayers, acceptance, spiritual life. They're very important talks. I speak all about that. Everything should be centered on that. Anything above that of feeling warmth and feeling, having some experiences that all will lead to demonic deception. Very dangerous. So her repentance was deep and she didn't even have time to produce Fruits of repentance, one can say, where she has to make up for the sins that she did. And God accepted her just with her repentance. Now, this is another story where one can see that if you judge, we could be judging again wrong, demonic judgment, where people can say, look at her, she was a Christian, she helped the poor, she gave money to the monks, etc. And later on, she started leading a very... A dirty life with men, etc. She's doomed. She's finished. She's going to go to hell. That's it. She's finished. There's nothing. We can't say that. We don't know. And look at that. She repented, and a short time later, she was saved. Saint Evdokia, Princess Evdokia, 7th of July, she was Venerable Efrosini of Moscow. She was a princess, but later on became an, a nun and took the name Efrosini. Saint Evdokia married Grand Prince Dmitri of Moscow, also known as Saint Dmitri Donskoy, 19th of May in 1367. Now, I'm not really up into Russian history, but Saint Dmitri Donskoy is a very important figure in Russian history because he 
did battle with the Tatars and he beat them and things like that and helped free Russia from them. By her gentleness and piety, she became a support and comfort to her husband in one of the most critical moments of Russian history. I like that part because that's how women should be today and men to women as well, but let's talk about this one. A wife can, can support and comfort her husband without having to be a princess or the husband has to be a prince. Women should be supportive and comfort their husbands and also men, the husbands, should support and comfort their wives. She gave abundant alms to the poor and had churches built to the glory of God. As uh, in her position as princess, because she had a lot of money, she was able to give money to the poor and she was able to build churches. Now, we might not be able to build churches, but we can give money to when churches have been built, whatever you give, 50, 100, 200, 1,000, and you can still give money to the poor. You don't have to have thousands and millions of dollars to do that. God's not going to ask for that. He looks at what you've got and he looks at the amount that you're given. Is that something that's superfluous? Is that money that you've got excess of? Like say you've got a lot of money and you give a thousand to the poor. Does that thousand dollars hurt you? Probably not. But someone might be poor and give a hundred dollars, but that hundred dollars means that it's going to affect them financially where they have to go without to some extent and that's what God wants he wants to see what sacrifice you're doing and that, that's what counts not how much you give when we give money to the churches or monasteries you have to know that we become we are eternally commemorated every time like we heard today in the services it says, for example, when I read, again we pray for mercy, life, peace, health, salvation, visitation, pardon and remission of the sins of, and then goes on and on and on, whatever, and also adds the founders, donors and benefactors of this holy temple or monastery, if it's a monastery being doing the service. So, for example, if a church is being built and you put in money for that, later on, you will be commemorated at the church services as a benefactor, a donor. Or the same for a monastery, even if it's not being built, but you're giving, say, money to a monastery to help them in their life, etc., then you will be eternally commemorated. And after you've gone, then there's another prayer. Again, we pray for the blessed memory and remission of sins of, goes on, 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 and then the blessed and ever-memorable founders and benefactors of this holy temple or monastery. So when you die, you're also commemorated. And we will be commemorated even when the world is ended, that we were benefactors and donors uh, of monasteries and churches. That's the importance of making sure that you support monasteries and churches. And you might say, oh, but they don't use the money. You don't know what they're using the money for, whatever. 
God knows. And even if you gave money somewhere where at the end it was swandered maybe or something bad, it doesn't matter because God will still, you will still be commemorated and God will bless you. That's why the saints, when a poor person used to come up, whether it was a real poor person or maybe a false one, the saints would put their hand in their pocket and pull out whatever, whatever came out and give regardless. And sometimes they were false. They weren't, they weren't real poor people. But those people still receive God's blessing by giving. Although she appeared in public, richly dressed, she led a strict ascetic life, Evdokia, princess, wearing chains on her body and praying long at night. But she was careful to keep these great feats secret, a strict ascetic life. But at the same time, see, she wasn't just doing that, but she was helping the poor and obviously leading a spiritual life. Because many people led war chains and things like that and were deceived. When I say chains, I mean the chains when they wear them those chains begin to cut into the flesh. And it's very painful, there's infections, and there's blood, etc. But what, they, what these saints did is they wore clothes and no one knew about it. They inflicted this pain on themselves. Now, does that mean that we're going to do that? Does that mean some of you are going to go now and put chains on yourselves? No, because you're going to get proud. Don't worry about the chains. Take care of your children. Cultivate humility. Give alms to the poor. Say sorry. Those type of things is what God wants, not the chains. Then why did she wear the chains? Because she had progressed. She had already acquired a lot of humility. And therefore she was in safe ground. She was safe. During the famous battle of Kulikovo, whatever, 1380, must be a famous Russian battle, which her husband fought against the Tatars, the princess engaged in constant prayer in the church of the Archangel Michael. Her husband was victorious over the enemy. Doesn't mean that she was, he was victorious because just of her prayers. I'm saying he... But she prayed during the most difficult time of her husband. And that's what spouses should do. Pray for each other during each other's difficult times. The husband's going through something difficult, the wife should pray. The wife's going through something difficult, the husband should pray. Support each other. That's what we learn from these lives. Being widowed in 1389... The princess then had, because of her children's youth and the perilous state of the country, to take the regency of the Principality of Moscow, assisted by the boyars, that's the members of the, of the nobility. By the way, she also had built the cathedral of um, the Domitian, which is in the Kremlin. I think it's still, that's a big monastery there, and she built that. That's still there, isn't it? Yep. 
that's the, the you know Moscow. So she had to take care of the country of that area of Moscow there because her children were too young. Government affairs did not, however, stop her continuing her secret ascetic strivings and giving herself to God-pleasing works, such as the building of stone churches, which she endowed with icons and precious objects. What is this? This, this puts us down when we say, oh, I don't have time much for the church and to do prayers because I work or I have children. She was taking care of a whole kingdom and she still had time to do God-pleasing works, to pray, build churches, etc. We're not called to build churches. We can help by giving a bit of money and um, we don't have to build monasteries. But we are called to do God-pleasing works, to work on our passions and not have as an excuse continually, oh, we're too busy. We're too busy. That's what we, a lot of us do all the time. We're busy. And that's after you're on the internet for three hours maybe in the night. I'm too busy. Or the update in your Facebook. Or the Instagram. Or Twitter, whatever it's called. Those are the things. That we, we have time for that. But we haven't got time to do good works or to do prayers, etc. That's what's called excuses in sins, like demonic excuses. And here we have these royals. That's why it's important to read the lives of these royal saints that they were so busy taking care and they still did their good deeds in spiritual life. An angel having appeared to her to tell her of her approaching death, the princess, laying aside all earthly care, received the monastic tonsure under the name of Ephrosini in the monastery of the Ascension. And she ended her days in prayer. She fell asleep in peace on July the 7th, 1407. Sorry, is that monastery in the Kremlin the Ascension or Domitian? What is it? Domitian. Must be another monastery. At the end, her piety was so great that she wanted to die as a nun. We made my mother a nun a couple of months before she died. During her tonsure, she was completely paralysed. She couldn't speak, but her mind was 100%. She communicated through blinking. That's all. Yes, no. One for yes, two for no. That's it. And she wanted to become a nun. Do you want to become a nun? Blinked. Are you sure? Blinked. So the bishop came and she was tonsured into a schema. Then she died as a nun. And she was given that special grace that monastics get when they die. And the monastics have a special grace that's given to them in which they do not undergo rigor mortis. As you know, when someone dies, their bodies become stiff, like a plank. Monastics stay soft. So she died on um, St. Nicholas. And one of her wishes was that she didn't want to go in the refrigerator. She hated that refrigerator. So I rang around and found a funeral director. I said, I, wanna, I want you to take her from the hospital 
straight to the church. They did that. I said, I don't want any taking the bloods out and things like that. I don't like that. Just do it like that. From the hospital to the church. So we took it to the church and we kept it all night. We did services. We did liturgy. And the funeral director said, look, we'll give you some spray because it was summer because she might begin to smell. Never smelt anything. The next morning they came at 7 o'clock to take her then to the monastery at Kentland to do a monastic service, a monastic funeral. So then she went from there. Remember, she died on um, Monday at um, 10 o'clock. So we kept her all night. And after that, we went to the Kentland. And I was in the same car as the, as the coffin. And the driver that was there said, oh, I'm very surprised. I go, what with? He goes, oh, I noticed that when you put something in her hand, the hand was flexible. I go, oh, really? Because I knew why. I was acting dumb. And I said, oh, have you seen that before? He said, no. Oh, once, he said. Saw it once. I go, what was that for? He goes, it was a... Russian priest, I think it was the monk, but he, that, that, that another difference. Russian monastic. So what happened there? He goes, oh, he was soft too. Have you seen it with anyone else? He goes, no, never seen that before. Because she should have been really stiff. So it's a great thing for someone, even if they never had time to lead the monastic life, as they should, but for the two months she, that she was dying, she was like going through a martyrdom because slowly, 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 everything just stops except for your brain. Your brain, you have 100%, it's called motor neuron disease, and your eyes, you can move your eyes but you, you lose the function of your lungs and slowly, slowly until you suffocate. So I can understand when I read this life that she wanted to become a nun before her death. Doesn't mean a lot of you can't do that as well. Now, in the consideration or reflection in the new in the newer version of the Saint Nikolai's prologue, there's something there which Saint Nikolai wrote. And at first I didn't understand it properly because in his book he doesn't even have that life written. But he does comment on her life. It says to conceal one's virtues and ascetic labours has been the custom of ascetics, both female and male not only in the earliest times of Christianity, but throughout all ages to the present time. Evdokia, wife of the glorious Prince Dmitri Donskoy, the liberator of Russia from the Tatars, was left a widow in 1389 while still fairly young. Filled with devotion, this princess built many churches, distributed alms, and secretly weakened her body by fasting and long vigils. She wore an iron chain around her body. That confirms 
the life that we just read. But he adds something a little bit more, which I didn't find in the other life. That's why I like reading different books, because you get sometimes some people leave one part out. Meanwhile, she always appeared happy before the public, clothed luxuriously and adorned with pearls. The public said many things about her, and they began to spread rumours that she was leading an immoral life. Her sons also heard about these rumours and were insulted and resentful and openly informed their mother of what was being said about her. In other words, her own children, her sons, believed the rumours and they went up to her and said that they are, you know, embarrassed, resentful towards her and insulted that she was leading a dirty life. Their mother opened her luxurious robes and her sons, with great horror, saw her body completely withered, dried up and bound with iron chains. Again, see how we can fall into the trap of judging. A lot of saints, lives of saints, we speak about this judging. They write about that a lot. There was one which they did, I think it was Saint Methodios of Constantinople, 9th century, early 9th century. He was a confessor of the faith. He suffered under the emperors that were against the icons. He defended the icons. And they made an accusation against him that he was having relationships with women. And they wanted to condemn him, the other fathers. They believed it. And what he did was he opened up his rasa and exposed himself, his body and his private parts, etc., and the other fathers were shocked to see that he was all basically incapable of committing such a sin. And they realised that he was being slandered by the heretics. Judgment. Even some of the fathers judged him. That's why St Constantine said, even if I see a monk or a clergyman doing a sin, I will cover him with my mandia, with his purple robe that the emperor that the emperors used to wear, and cover them because of this danger of condemning people. He didn't want public spectacles; he wanted it to be handled properly with ecclesiastical order not just go to go along on rumours. And when he died, St Constantine, he went to heaven, he saw the glory that the monastics had and he said to himself, I wish I became a monastic. Monastics, unfortunately, are opened up to a lot of um, slander. But then again, all of the saints, when they led holy lives, were opened up to slander. It's part of the condition of leading a spiritual life. God allows that. Blessed are the persecuted, 
And how much reward do they get? So much reward. Now let's do a new martyr, new martyr Ducas of Mytilini, 24th of April, Greece. Ducas, the righteous new martyr of Christ, was from Mytilini. He was young and handsome. He was sober-minded. In other words, he was spiritually sensible and struggled against carnal pleasures. That means that he struggled against the sexual passions which he was more vulnerable to because he was young and he was handsome. That's why sometimes the saints did not like being handsome or beautiful because of the temptations involved. Today, people go out of their way to look handsome and beautiful. But really, that's not a good idea. It doesn't mean you can have to make yourself ugly, but some of the saints prefer to be ugly. That's why St. Christopher is shown as with a dog's head, but that's not really correct. But I think, from what I know from tradition, that he was, he was very handsome, and that was becoming a temptation, and he prayed, and then God allowed him to become ugly. His dog head business is like myth. Since he was a tailor by trade, his services were sought by agaz, that means Muslims of high rank, and the rich and powerful to make their clothes. Talking about the Muslim people. He was Christian, but he was a tailor, and they would invite him to come to their place and make their clothes. For this reason, he was often in the house of the Turks. Now, a high-ranking woman from a powerful and influential family among his clientele became obsessed with him. Obsessed, you know why? Because he was handsome, and even as she was married, she wanted to fall with him. By the way, you might not know this, but the Turks didn't, weren't only obsessed by very nice women, they were also obsessed by uh, handsome men, boys. And what Christians would do is when they saw that their sons were handsome, they tried to send them to other places so that they won't be assaulted by the Turks who are into those things. So even males weren't safe. From the beginning, she began to offer him different gifts. She even attempted to corrupt him with demonically suggestive and lustful words. When Ducas, who was pure in body and soul, heard these indecent hints, he was astonished, for he never anticipated such sinful conduct from this woman. And remember that a lot of these, uh, a lot of the people back then were so simple, they never were exposed, and they never even knew these things existed, to sinful things like those things. Like now, our young people, they just about know everything exists, and their, their minds have been polluted from school, TV, internet. It's very, very bad. But there are a lot of people that are homeschooled, etc., they could go to 15, 16 and have no idea that these disgusting things even can occur.
He therefore made the sign of the cross and left, never to return in imitation of Joseph the Orcomely. Joseph is an Old Testament figure who I think the wife of some, um, the royal person there, tried to seduce him. She grabbed him and then she ripped his clothes and then, but he left naked and she got really upset because he wouldn't fall with her. So he slandered, she slandered him to the king, whatever he was then, and said that he tried to rape her and then he was accused and put in jail and things like that. When the shameless woman observed that Ducas was not coming to her house anymore, she sent a message inviting him. The blessed Ducas, however, in no wise replied to the note. At this point, she went in person to confront him, even beseeching, young man, listen to me, come to my house as you used to do, and have no fear. My husband is at war, and there's a chance he may not return at all. Then if you turn away from your faith and become Muslim, I will make you my husband. But in the event my husband should come back, I will still have you first in my household. In other words, we can do sinful life behind my husband's back and do adultery. Furthermore, if you don't want to become a Muslim, then remain a Christian. If they're going to get married, he has to become a Muslim. But if the husband comes back, he said we can still have sexual relations together, only come as I've asked you. This and many other deceptive and immodest proposals were spoken by this new Egyptian temptress, the one I spoke about before. Late, lastly, she added, if you do not agree to what I have said, know that you will lose your life. Then she turned and departed. Nevertheless, the righteous Ducas was inspired with the love of our Lord Jesus Christ in his heart. He consequently ignored the, this crazy woman's flatteries and threats. Once again, she persisted and asked him to come to her, but he would not give in to her plans. She then became infuriated and was determined to have him put to death so that she never need see his criticism of her immoral life. This is a very good story because this is what happens. Couples where they're being tempted by other people to fall. A, a man, a husband, could be tempted from a, some other woman to fall and destroy his marriage, his marriage vows. Or the, or the other way around, the woman could be tempted by another man. And what did St. Ducas do? He stopped seeing her if you know that there's someone who's trying to lead you to sin, cut them off from your family before it's too late. Do not have association with them because they have as their aim to make you fall into adultery. The same as a single person. If you want to keep your purity and you notice that the opposite sex or could even be the same sex these days are trying to entice you into something evil, you cut off from them, keep away from them, keep your purity. Because she couldn't get him, then she wanted him to be put to death. The accursed, debauched woman then went directly to the vizier, 
vizier, some high Muslim official, and presented her matter, only reversing the facts. The perverse woman testified, I have a certain tailor who fashions the clothes of my entire household. I summoned him for an appointment in order to make several dresses. He entered and spoke to me with shocking words, which I dare not repeat. I therefore slapped him on the face, after which he left. At the moment, he is at his workshop. In conclusion, I request that you should apply the utmost strictness of the law against such a man, even the death penalty. The vizier promised to accomplish the deed according to her will, for she was from a royal family. The prefect was sent, like the policeman would say, was sent to arrest Ducas, who was brought before this vizier, I think as they say it, and the plaintiff, that's the person making the, the complaint, the woman. The vizier addressed the woman who still secretly desired Ducas and said, what do you demand as compensation? She answered slowly and firmly, if he becomes a Muslim, leave him be. If however he refuses, place him in irons. The ruler agreed with her advice and instruction. I don't even know if I'm saying the word the vizier properly. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, he at first attempted to tempt Ducas with sweet words of praise, only to finally sentence him to be brutally tortured. Eventually, the ruler realised that it was impossible to make Ducas consent to this demand, that is to become a Muslim. They skinned him alive and they threw his skin into the sea and left him in irons to die. The Righteous One reposed on the 24th of April 1564 in Constantinople. His soul ascended into the heavens and received a martyr's crown. Now you might say, well, we don't live in Turkish times. Um, well, in, in Syria, where there's Orthodox monasteries, under the Antiochian Patriarchate. There, the Muslims attacked those monasteries, destroyed them, raped nuns, killed priests, bishops, etc. tried to force some of them to become Muslims. So this is in our times. But apart from that, this is a very good lesson for people to keep their marriage vows, their monastic vows, or if they're single, to keep themselves pure are waiting their marriage or if they're going to become monastics or whatever. The next life I find difficult to read. This life is very powerful. It's a new martyr. I hope I can get through it. So let's see if I can do it. Lydia, the daughter of a priest in the city of Ufa, was born on March 20, 1901. From childhood, she was sensitive, affectionate, and loved by all. She feared sin and everything forbidden by God. Upon completing girls', uh, girls school at the age of 19, she married and later lost her husband during the Russian Civil War with the departure of the White Army. White Army were those who were loyal to the Tsar. The Red Army were the communists. Her father was a priest and he joined the 
renovationist schism organized by the Bolsheviks at its very beginning in 1922. What the um, communists did is that they tried to split the Russian church by making another church which was run by the communists. And many priests joined that group for benefits or they were fearful. And it was looked at as bad because it was causing a schism in the church. And her father joined that church. The daughter, prostrating herself at her father's feet, said to him, Bless me, Father, to leave you, so that I will not hinder the salvation of your soul. Why would she do that when he, when, when he did such a big sin of going into schism? Bless me, Father, to leave you, so that I will not hinder your salvation. The old priest knew his daughter, just that he was aware of the wrongness of his action. He knew that the daughter was saying it in that way, out of respect not to rip into him, but in a way saying it in a nice way to say what you're doing is wrong. So sometimes we can even censure people, we can reprimand them in a certain way which can be very, very nice and polite, but it gets the point across. And she said, you know, I don't want to be in the way of your salvation. In other words, stop what you're doing. And she left. He wept and blessing Lydia for an independent life, prophetically said to her, see daughter, when you win your crown, that you tell the Lord that although I myself proved too weak for the battle, I did not restrain you, but blessed you to go. Do you understand what he said? I'm weak. I gave in. I went to the schism. But I'm not stopping you. You go, but just pray for me when you are saved. I will, Papa, she said, kissing his hand. Thus herself foretelling her future. Because he actually said when you, re when you receive your crown, he was enlightened. He knew that she was going to die for the faith. Lydia succeeded in entering the forestry department and in 1926 she was transferred to the collective lumber industry for work with the lowest paid labourers. Here, she immediately came into contact with simple Russian people whom she warmly loved and who responded to her in the same way. The lumberjacks, those who cut the trees and the drivers, hardened by the difficult working conditions, related with amazement that a feeling came over them in the office of the lumber department when they met Lydia. And they said, when you go near her, it's similar to the feeling you get when you go near a miraculous icon like of the Mother of God in their town, etc. Near Ufa. Remember, a lot of churches were destroyed. So they were remembering their old days of when they used to venerate the icon of the Mother of God and the feeling they would get. 
which they lost that feeling because they weren't going to church anymore. And that's true. When you venerate relics of saints, when you venerate icons, miraculous icons, you get that feeling. I have experienced that same feeling when you meet a holy person. Like when I met Elder Porphyrios and other saints, you get that feeling as if you are venerating a miraculous icon thing that they give off God's grace. Foul language, insults and quarrels were no longer heard in the office. Evil passions were extinguished and people became kinder to one another because of Lydia's influence. This was amazing and was noticed by everyone, including the party officials, the communists. They kept watch over Lydia, but discovered nothing suspicious. She did not go to the churches that had been legalised by the Bolsheviks, like her father joined that church, and she attended catacomb services rarely and carefully. So there was, because they were being persecuted, a lot of the church went underground. They were called the catacomb church. They would serve liturgy in secret. And she would rarely go to those services, and if she did, she went carefully because they would follow her to try and find out where these church services were held so they can break them up. The GPU, which later on became the KGB, but in those days it was called the GPU, secret police, knew that members of the catacomb church existed in the diocese where the lumber yard was, but they could find no way of uncovering and arresting them. In order to uncover those who had not yet been arrested, the GPU, secret police, suddenly returned from exile Bishop Andrew, who was deeply revered by the people and by the entire catacomb church, the secret church. What they wanted to do is bring him there so that people can come to him and then they would follow when he would go to do services in secret and collect the ones who were still leading orthodox lives. At the bishop's direction, he was received openly by only one church in Ufa, although secretly the whole diocese came to him. The GPU was wrong. Instead of being uncovered, the catacomb church deepened and spread, remaining all the while inaccessible to spies. The GPU, convinced of the failure of its plan, again arrested Bishop Andrew and returned him to exile. Lydia was arrested in July 1928. The secret operations department had been looking for the typist who had been supplying the workers of the forestry department with typewritten brochures containing lies of saints, prayers and the sermons and instructions of ancient and contemporary hierarchs. So someone was typing up lives of saints, prayers and distributing them secretly. We don't need to do it secret today. And yet we don't distribute. 
We should distribute. Give people lives of saints, especially. Talks, whatever. Beneficial things. It had been noticed that the lower stem of the letter K was broken on the typist typewriter. They examined the writing and they noticed the K was something wrong with it. And they checked all the typewriters and what did they discover? Lydia's typewriter was the one that they were looking for. The GPU understood that a clue for uncovering the whole catacomb church had fallen into their hands. Ten days of uninterrupted questioning did not break the martyr, who simply refused to say anything. On July the 20th, the interrogator, having lost all patience, gave Lydia over to the special command for interrogation. So what's this special command? This special command worked in a corner room in the cellar of the GPU headquarters. A permanent guard was stationed in the cellar corridor. On this day, the guard was Kirill, a 23-year-old private. He saw Lydia as she was brought into the cellar, heading towards that room. And that special command room was where they really, really tortured them. And he was the guard. The preceding 10 days of questioning had drained the martyr's strength and she could not go down the steps. Private Atayev Kirill, at the command of his superiors, was asked to help her and lead her down to the interrogation room. Then Lydia said, may Christ save you, thanking the guard, sensing a spark of compassion for her in the gentleness of the Red Army Guard's strong arms. Saint Lydia felt that as he was helping her, but he was just obeying his orders, she felt in his soul that there was something there, that he wasn't just a hard-hearted communist army person, but there was something there, there was a spark. Because remember that a lot of people, their faith was extinguished by the communists. They weren't allowed to go to church, a lot of them, and they, were really, they really killed a lot of souls. And most of them were very hard, irreligious, you know, horrible. But what she noticed is that she felt spiritually there's something there. And she said, may Christ save you. Even though the soldier Kirill, he didn't show anything. The martyr's words with her eyes full of pain and confusion fell into his heart. Now he could no longer listen with indifference to her endless screams and cries as he had previously listened to the same cries from others being questioned and tortured. So he was hard. Before that, he was stationed in front of the door 
and he could hear they were torturing people. He didn't care. He didn't feel anything. But now, because of his contact with St. Lydia, he changed and he no longer was indifferent to the pains and the screams. Lydia was tortured for a long time. The GPU tortures were usually done in a way that did not leave noticeable marks on the body of the tortured, but at Lydia's questioning, no attention was paid to this. They didn't care. They just really, really tortured her, not caring what they did to her. Lydia's screams and cries continued almost without interruption for more than one and a half hours. But are you not in pain? You are screaming and crying. Does that mean it's painful? Asked the exhausted torturers during one of the inter intervals. So one of the torturers said, aren't you in pain? You are screaming and crying. Does that mean it's painful? Like sarcastic, etc., etc., whatever. And then she answered, painful, Lord, how painful, replied Lydia with a broken moan. This is good, this, because when we read a lot of the lives of saints, we sometimes think, that, oh, they never felt pain, I didn't this, and that. You know, that's, um, that's not correct. A lot of saints did feel pain. And later on, they were given the grace where they no longer felt pain. And we get confused and we think, oh, yeah, they felt no pain at all. That's not true. This shows it. She said, painful, Lord, how painful. And she was moaning. She couldn't even speak properly. Then why don't you talk? It will be even more painful, said the confused torturers. Why don't you talk? Why don't you give us the information? If you don't give us the information... We're going to inflict more pain on you. And they were confused because they couldn't understand how she was able to endure without saying anything. They wanted her to betray where are these catacomb churches, who believes and things like that. And she didn't, she didn't give in. And then she says, I cannot talk, I cannot. He will not allow it, groaned Lydia. And then they said, who will not allow it? God will not allow it. The torturers thought up something new for the martyr, sexual assault. There were four of them. One more was needed. So they called the guard, Kirill, who was outside the door to help. When Kirill entered the room and saw Lydia, he understood the means of her tor further torture. And he understood his role in this, that they wanted him to participate in this sexual assault or to help or hold it down or whatever. And the miracle was worked in him like the conversions of the ancient torturers that we read in the lives of saints, where some of them actually were converted. Just suddenly they converted and they repented and said, I believe in Christ, and then, and then they were killed. Kirill's whole soul was repelled by this satanic abomination and a holy enthusiasm seized him because 
He was, he was disgusted. There's no way that he was going to participate in that particular sin. Remember, they had did this before. And he was probably called in other times too. But he never converted. So he probably participated in other sexual assaults because he was stationed there. He was there for a while. Totally unaware of what he was doing, the Red Army Guard, Kirill, killed the two torturers who stood before him on the spot with his own revolver, his gun. Before even the second shot had echoed, the GPU man who had been standing behind Kirill hit him on the head with the handle of his gun. Kirill had just enough strength to turn and grab his attacker by the throat, but a shot from the fourth soldier knocked him to the floor. Remember those four soldiers. Two he killed, one was in back of him and he hit him. Then Kirill tried to grab him and knock him down, but then the fourth man shot Kirill. Kirill fell with his head toward Lydia, who was stretched out with cords. She was tied up. The Lord gave him the opportunity of hearing once more from the martyr words of hope. And looking straight into Lydia's eyes, Kirill, blood gushing from him, gasped out the... Sorry. And looking straight into Lydia's eyes, Kirill, blood gushing from him, gasped out his union with the Lord. Saint, take me with you. I will take you, said Lydia, smiling radiantly. This conversation opened a door to the other world and terror darkened the consciousness of the two remaining GPU men who were there. They lost it of what they saw and what happened. With insane shouts, they began to shoot the helpless victims who threatened them and they shot until both of their revolvers had been emptied. In other words, they lost their minds and they started shooting into Lydia and Kirill. That's like mad, crazy. It was as if they were being threatened how could they be threatened? One was already shot. Lydia was tied up. What threatened them? The whole experience, the repentance, that, that knocked them out. Those who had come running at the shots led the two men away who were shouting madly and then they themselves fled from the room seized by an unknown terror. One of these two GPU men became completely insane. The other soon died of a nervous shock. Before his death, the second one told everything to his friend, Sergeant Alexei Ikon, Ikonikov, who turned to God, like he converted from the example, and brought this account to the church. He himself suffered a martyr's death for his zealous spreading of this account. 
because he would spread this account of what he heard, then they killed him. All three, Lydia, Kirill and Alexei, have been glorified as saints in the spiritual consciousness of the catacomb church that was early on, but now they're recognised in the whole Russian church. By the prayers of your martyrs, Lydia, Kirill and Alexei, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, pray for us. I got through it. Usually I find it hard to get through those things. What do we get from that? What we get from it is that these things work on our souls. They move us. They're very powerful. They change us. And look at that. The same man who stood at the door, who would hear the people being tortured, didn't feel anything. Not only that, it doesn't say, but I assume that he also participated because that room was specifically where they sexually assaulted women, if they were the ones that were being interrogated. He might have participated in that, unmoved. But then the encounter with Saint Lydia touched his soul at one moment and now he's a saint of the church. Did he confess? No. Did he commune? No. The martyrdom that he went through, his confession of the faith was enough for him and he was saved. There was one more St. John Damascus, but we'll do that next time. I want to tell you quickly a story. You might not believe it, it's up to you. In my first years as a priest, I don't like this procedure where people go and confess and then basically they're allowed to commune straight away, especially if they're not leading proper lives. And I think from what I heard, the proper way is, you tell the person not to commune for some months give them a penance and help them to change their lives because some of them might, be, might have sinned the week before or the day before. And then suddenly, what, are they going to commune? So this young man came up to me and he says, oh, I want to confess. This was just in the liturgy, just before communion. And I don't like doing those things, but anyway, I, I did it. And at that time, I was having some doubts of whether I'm being too strict. Maybe I'm strict, maybe the other priests are right, maybe I'm doing wrong, maybe I should be more free, let them commune, I don't know. I was having some doubts. So this boy, who was about 18, 19, came up to me and he said, um, I want to confess, and he confessed, and he was upset. I said, so you want to stop your life? Yes. You're going to change? Yes. And then I kind of allowed him, I said, okay, commune. Because I says I said I was being a bit knocked around. So he communed, and then he gave me a lift back to my premises. And I sat down with him and his brother, and I said, "Oh, I want to read you a life." So I read them the life. And then they went home. Later on, his brother rang up and says, so-and-so's acting funny. I go, what do you mean he's acting funny? 
oh, he's acting like crazy. I said, what is he doing that for? His parents are now going to think that because he goes to church, that the church makes people crazy. And I said, oh, why? What's he doing? He goes, oh, he's, he's um, saying super things and he says that some of our demonic things. And I thought, oh, obviously, he must have read some things and he's fantasizing. Maybe he's mentally ill and he's making up that demons are talking to him. You know, I, think, I didn't believe it. And um, it was getting worse. He attacked his mum. I said, okay, we'll bring him down. So the two brothers brought him down who were weightlifters and the father. They have sisters too, but they didn't come. Just, just the brothers that were built, weightlifters, and the father, who was a pretty big guy as well. They brought him in and he was like possessed. And I, I still didn't, but I thought, to me he's making things up, I don't know. I just find these things hard to believe. Not that I don't believe in possessed people, but people make things up. So I took to him some holy water and he smacked it out of my hand. So I said, I better read some prayers. So I tried to read some prayers, but he wouldn't stand still. He wouldn't stay there. And these weight lifters found it really hard to hold this man down, this boy. Three men. And they just couldn't hold him down. It was very difficult. So I read him some prayers. And then he said, as he was in the kind of lounge room there, and opposite the, there where he was, there was a room. And he goes, I don't like that room. That room, I don't like it. Something bothers me about that room. It was dark. In the room was my paralysed mother, who at that stage could still use her hands a bit. And later on I found out that she was doing prayers because she was a bit scared. And she was doing prayers. And he didn't know she was in there. Because I don't like that room. That was strange, how he knew. Later on, when they took him home, he was getting worse. So I said, you better ring up the doctor. So the doctor came and gave him a, like a tranquilizer and injected him. He was still going for it. He was still very strong. And the doctor goes, this is very strange. One of them is enough to knock you out. So I gave him a second one. He was still strong. And he goes, this is, this is, I've never seen this before. I gave him a third one, a third tranquilizer, whatever it was, some sedative, injection. And he finally a little bit calmed down and they took him to the mental institution. That was a bit devastating for me because it was like, it's like they're gonna blame me. What did I do? I just read him a life of saint and I, and I let him commune. What, what happened? I don't know. And he was there for like a lot of days. Parents blamed me. So I decided, why don't we do an unction service? We'll do an unction service and you can, I said to the brother, you take the oil and anoint him. 
Before that, before he went to the mental institution, they took him to a priest, a Greek priest, who had been a priest for many, 40 years plus. And that priest had seen a lot. I mean, I was only a priest for a couple of years at that stage. I was, um, if my mother was still alive, well, she, di she died two years after I was made a priest. So I was young, about, I was only a priest for a year. And this priest was a priest for 40 years. And he went there and he read him prayers and I said, um, well, what do you think, Father? Well, what's going on? He goes, I've never seen a case of possession to that extent. I said, what do you mean? He goes, he's possessed. He was actually saying things like, I'm the demon of such and such and all these things. I thought he was making it up. He was saying things I don't want to say, but he was saying passions, you know, sexual passions. I'm the demon of this, the demon of that. And, um, and I said to the priest, I said, and did it have to happen to me? How did it happen to me? And he goes, I've never seen anything like it. Anyway, we did the unction. And as soon as we finished the unction, he wasn't even there. That's why unction is very powerful. I don't do prayers for possessed people anymore. That, this type only comes out with prayer and fasting. Firstly, I can't fast because I'm sick. I don't fast properly. And I'm not a big prayer person. So therefore, you can't do that. The ascetics, people that are holy do those things. Father John Christiankin says, you do unctions. Unctions, he said, are more powerful than exorcisms. I didn't know that at the time. I only read that 20 years later. So I did this, uh, this unction, and as soon as I said through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, amen, the phone rang. Because they were ready to give him electric shocks, he wouldn't eat. And then who was on the phone? The father. And he said, oh, thank you, thank you. Go, well, what's going on? He goes, just now he asked that he wants to eat barbecue chicken and souvlaki and this and that. I said, are they going to do the electric shock treatment? He says, no, they're not going to do that. Don't think I healed him. That's the service, the unction. Even without him being present, and Father John Christian can confirm that. What happened? How did this happen? Did anyone know he was possessed? No. What was the life that I read? It was the life of Saint Lydia, Kirill and Alexei. That life I just read. It was a very powerful life. And the fact was that because his repentance was sincere but he wasn't properly prepared with the Holy Communion and the life the demons became agitated and they manifested themselves. That's how powerful the lives of saints are and that's how powerful repentance is. Now, some of you want to believe, some don't. doesn't matter. If you think I'm mentally disturbed and make things up, you're welcome. I don't know. It's up to you. Maybe I am. But that's my experience on that. What happened to him later on, I think um, with frequent confession, proper spiritual guidance from that same priest, I think he became better. 
So yes, people can be possessed without even knowing it. There are people that have gone to exorcisms in Greece and while the prayers have been done on others, all of a sudden they become crazy. And people know, oh, they're possessed. No one knew. So yes, when we repent, when we come back from a sinful life, sometimes we're not, doesn't mean that we're possessed like he was, but the demons do have influence on us. And when we change our life and start leading a spiritual life, we go through such a upheaval in our soul and it knocks us out. And don't believe these priests that say, oh, when you come to Christ, everything will be beautiful and this and that. No. No, there's a lot of suffering. You might not know this as well, but the last thing I want to say is that St. Augustine, whose book, whose, whose confessions, called the Confessions of St. Augustine, they're like a penguin classic. His conversion was so powerful, it affected him so much that he had a breakdown. That's why I'm very careful with people who convert who change their lives, whether they're orthodox from young or they're converts, whatever, slow and steady, sober, be careful, not abrupt, have time to look at things, not communion straight away, you know, like they've got to cleanse themselves to some extent. That's why the church had penances. Like today, it's like hardly no one uses them. The ones who use them the best are the Greeks, the traditional Greeks. Well, with God's help, we got through 46 pages, which is good. That's big, big print, of course. I just didn't have time to do St. John Damascus. So what I want to do, God willing, in the next talk is to continue on, similar to today, reading different lives of saints. And what I'm trying to do, the best of my ability, is to teach you how to read them how to interpret them, how to get benefit from them, apply them to yourselves, to our life, etc. So if you're interested in the next talk, to come and listen to more saints and be moved, and like you were today, which that's why a lot of you are subdued, quiet, because it affected you. And not me, I didn't affect you. The lives affected you. And get those lives of saints too. You will never regret it. I mean...